Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And I'm TK. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at XNateXGrayX. And this is a brand new program. That's right. We're not here to talk about the old MC2 universe you're used to. No, 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 no. We've graduated. We are here in the amazing MC2 universe. That's being quite generous, I think. Well, it's the adjective. <laughs> so that's just what it is. She says it on the cover you hear that dad i'm amazing now and he's like but that's my logo and i'm like do you really have that much to worry about pete but meanwhile we gave the avengers the vengers back for their comic tie-in yeah we we have a really big a really big space ahead of us to really consider now that they've taken the original mc2 launch paired it back a little bit and added extra words to the titles are we looking at a more robust fuller mc2 i personally think that the run of issues we're looking at spanning october 2006 through may 2007 perhaps are not the finest moment of the mc2 universe and it does feel like this could have benefited from a spring break or a summer vacation and some additional creative forces in the MC2 world. This really does just pick up a month later from where it seemed like the entire MC2 universe came to a beautiful conclusion with both the end of Spider-Girl and the end of Last Planet Standing. We got some closure. We got some wonderful moments. 100 issues of Spider-Girl. What a milestone. And even if there was a plan to bring this back, I can't can't help but feeling like putting some kind of weight behind at least the end of this phase and behind the start of a new one might have really let this take off. Truly, I have to agree. The end of Last Planet Standing and Spider-Girl 100 came in September of 2006. Amazing Spider-Girl number zero launches in October of 2006 with Amazing Spider-Girl following in December through May, six issues and then avengers next debuted in january and ran all five of its issues by march and it's the same creative teams we've seen tom defalco's writing everything and we've got ron friends pat olive and ron lim who actually is a welcome return because we haven't seen ron lim in a while and i do often really love his art but there's not there's no nobody else gets to write this book just that one guy that one time with that really creepy incel issue and it this just feels like it might might have been the point to give somebody else a little time in the sandbox. Because the time that we get is, unfortunately, a little bit uneven. We're going to be taking a look at The Amazing Spider-Girl 0 through 6 and Avengers Next 1 through 5, which were released in trade form shortly after their initial releases. Amazing Spider-Girl Volume 1, Whatever Happened to the Daughter of Spider-Man, was released in trade in May of 2007, where Avengers, like literally, same month, 
month, basically. Just a month later. It's amazing. And then Avengers Next Volume 3, Rebirth, which contains these five issues, was released in June, a little bit thereafter. And the creative team, like you said, it's all the same people. Everything is either written by Tom DeFalco, Tom DeFalco and Ron Friends, or Tom DeFalco and Ron Lim. We see pencils from Ron Friends and Ron Lim, with inks from Sal Buscema and Scott Kolblish, colors from Gotham Studios and Rob Rowe, and letters straight through by Dave Sharp. Now, of course, you know what time it is. It's Throw time for figures the, at me. Oh yeah, it's time for the sales figures. This is this is my you know Spider Girl vigilante special power. I sit there and I'm like, wait, but hold on, that might get you canceled. And we are looking at some bold good numbers for Spider Girl, and then we are looking at some really sad sinking numbers pretty quickly. When Amazing Spider Girl number zero comes out, it comes out at just over twenty seven thousand copies, and for an issue that we are going to discuss, does nothing, establishes nothing. In fact. All it does is de-establish things we care about. You know what? Twenty-seven thousand is kind of generous. Yeah, I'm. I that number actually really shocked me. I, I, I mean, it's not hard to imagine a lot of people just saw the title and the zero and thought, "What a time to pick it up!" and didn't really realize they would be getting just a weird recap. Yeah, in the style of the annual that we had a million years ago. You know, featuring some of the same information from issue one hundred's back matter that wound up not being collected on Marvel Unlimited. Which now I'm like, maybe that's why it wasn't collected because they knew so much of it reappears in Amazing Spider-Girl 100. Regardless, we have Amazing Spider-Girl number one coming in at some incredible numbers. As a matter of fact, Amazing Spider-Girl number one sold just over 47,000 copies. Jeez. Yeah, that's the best numbers the MC2 has seen since perhaps the first year of Spider-Girl. From there, however, it is a precipitous fall. Immediately, issue two sells barely better than issue zero at 28,000 copies. Issue 3 falls to 25,600. Issue 4 at 23,000. Issue 5 at 21,000. And Issue 6 barely selling above 20,000, squarely putting it exactly where the book was at 100. Yeah, I mean, you can... Issue 1 tells you this is not going to be any different. You're not going to be getting anything. There are a few minor tweaks that I appreciate that we'll talk about, but this is not a big change. This is not a soft reboot of any kind. So it makes sense that a lot of people would pick this up and be like, oh, this is just the same thing. I don't really care about this. But then you have that solid core of around 20,000 people who's in it with May till the end. Well, and then they tried something very different with Avengers Next, and I am eager to talk about that, but people didn't seem to be very interested in what was going on new in Avengers Next. Avengers Next debuting the same month as Amazing Spider-Girl number two came in at just 24,500 copies, and with a steady decline starting with number two's just under 21,000 copies. The series ends with just over 17,000 copies on issue five, and it really was just kind of like a race to the bottom. As we're going to look at a bit further on, the numbers on American Dream literally nearly go below 10,000 by the end, so we're just we're looking at a really rough period for MC2. Yeah, I mean, like I said, it doesn't surprise at this point. The team is continuing strong. They've clearly got the work in them, but at this point, it needed more of that. And one of the things it desperately needed was a chance to truly begin again. I think that for so many people, brand identity becomes so central to what you're talking about. And I think people say, oh, you know what? No, that's that thing I remember from my childhood, Spider Girl. That's that kid. That's that kid's book. I mean, it was only eight years earlier, but in the cultural zeitgeist, eight years, that's the full run of New Mutants. Yeah. And that is that is kids turning into adults. You're, you're 10 
when you pick up the first Spider Girl and you're a ten year old kid, you don't you don't know what high school is. This is this seems like a cool, interesting girl, and she's you know like Spider Man but modern, neat. By the time you're eighteen, this is all nonsense. Yeah, and it gets harder because for me, one of the things that you know saying out loud that after eight years, you know the New Mutants were X Force. You know, thinking about what issue one hundred and one of Amazing Spider Man is that's October of nineteen seventy one. That's the first appearance of Morbius. So like that's a pretty big Spider-Man has grown up point in his life. That's not kind of still doing the same thing. Are you telling me that after the amount of time it took Spider-Man to go body horror and get to, you know, mystical vampires and to, you know, for the new mutants to get Cable and become just this side of like a <laughs> mutant hit squad? Are you telling me that Spider-Girl has gone from sophomore year to junior year and has just graduated to a bigger, more testosterone filled blonde nonsense and is picking up a villain she left off with which is one of the things that drives me most insane about this reboot we spent so much time talking about how this book is about coming of age and i think back on a thing i read as a kid about full house and it's such a stupid thing to bring up here but i feel like if we're gonna put tom defalco in like a class of storytelling era that like 90s kind of energy is something that still very much pervades this title and i remember as a kid thinking that if a character is added to a TV show, oh, well, now they're on the TV show. They're there forever. That's that's how TV shows work. And Vicky was going to marry Danny on Full House. And then all of a sudden they wrote her out. And I was looking in, you know, Entertainment Weekly or TV Guide or some other magazine that a nine-year-old and eight-year-old didn't really understand what they were looking at. And it said that the producers felt that if Danny got married, it would no longer be about a single dad raising his girls with the help of his extended family. It would be about a new couple raising their adult children as part of a new unit, and it would fundamentally change the core of the show. I think they're afraid of fundamentally changing the core of Spider-Girl, and they think that by keeping her trapped in the past, they're protecting her and preserving her, but really what they're doing is they're caging her. Because they keep introducing, this is, I, I think you're right about that, and I think what they don't understand is they're writing good stuff like they keep introducing characters and pathways through which you can see the evolution of this character and why it would happen and where it would happen I you know as potentially very problematic as the stuff with Black Tarantula is it actually if they were cautious about things like ages and you know even just did something which is so common in comic books which is just a hand wave and age mayday up a little bit Black Tarantula becomes this really interesting potential like giving them a Batman and Catwoman relationship like it could have been a really cool thing and a big change to the character and something that Spider-Man flirted with with Black Cat and he always had other women in his life so that was never the central focus of his world but what if for Mayday she chooses to go for the semi-problematic anti-hero villain that is totally in love with her and also like kind of will stop doing crime if she says so what a cool interesting story but it does require evolving the character and moving her beyond where she's been and yeah the book really seems to not want to do that so every time they introduce something interesting you get excited for a few issues and then you realize that it can't ever really go and that's one of the fundamental damages that I think trying to base a story for 10 years on a bygone era becomes really complicated at some point the retro energy they were going for became retro to itself and now 
now they're doing throwbacks to the throwback they started at eight years earlier. And I don't think anywhere is just how out of focus this era kind of starts at. There's nowhere it's clearer than Spider-Girl number zero, which is structurally speaking, one of the least focused moments of the MC2. Yeah, both in terms of what they've decided we need to know and how they've decided to present it to us. Because before we even get into it, Normie barely exists in this. And then Normie barely exists in what we read. So there's a hard pivot from what we have spent the last 50 fucking issues on. Yeah, there's kind of no other way to put it than that. He just sort of disappears. Again, it's one of those things. Like, clearly they're capable of hand-waving because you would not think that anybody could read this and be okay with Normie just not being there after all that we've been through. But they just, you know, he's just not there. They just keep writing through it. And it's not great, but it's totally possible. It's not In this case, it's not great because Normie actually was a really good element and I wouldn't have gotten rid of him. But, like, there's plenty of stuff in this book that could have been hand-waved and just pushed through to the next point to get Mayday somewhere new and interesting. And I think nowhere does it come across more aggressive that this is so much trying to recapture who Mayday was when MC2 launched and we still have a gentleman 30 years Mayday's senior trying to craft the narrative of a coming-of-age teen girl. Like, I don't think it is fair to paint all young teenage girls that even look like May from May's similar socioeconomic background with the same brush, let alone all young women that look like any woman in the world. Not that there's a whole lot of different looking women going on in these books, unfortunately. It is a bunch of very pale white people. And then also Davida. And, you know, it's so hard to even imagine that all women could be painted with a single brush that the sort of monovoce single tone that all characters sort of come across with and it starts here in these diary blurbs. Yeah, it's a voice for May that just doesn't connect to anything about the character. Part of me thinks how jarring this would have been for readers of the previous volume, but at the same time, I think none of them are really going to care about it. They don't need to read it because they know what's going on. For new readers, I guess the tone is so inoffensive and just like gets you the information that maybe this will give them everything they need to get into Amazing Spider-Girl. But at the end of the day, if you're going to do this much prose, it feels like a really good time to refine and work on May's voice a little bit. And this really just is like, it's the comic book equivalent of the actor just reading from cue cards as they go through the script without any feeling whatsoever. And I think that's even part of the problem. It feels as though perhaps that, you know, it's something Chris Claremont said a million, zillion, billion years ago. He didn't like talking about stories because if he talked about them too often, the thrill of writing it and the thrill of seeing it transform sort of went away in seeing each person's reaction over time. It does feel almost like Tom DeFalco hasn't gotten to do a whole lot else with his life in this time. So he's just sort of like, and then this happened and then that happened. And because so much happens to May in such cyclical patterns, it feels like she says the same things over and over again. And you can see Tom DeFalco is getting tired of writing it. And, you know, that's that's fair. <laughs> this is a long time on a pretty small sliver of a tucked away corner of the broader Marvel multiverse. I can understand feeling just kind of over it. I, again, you know, what a joy to have put another writer on this to play around. Especially because when you've lived a story, your autobiography is very different than the way somebody else tells it. You know, I've 
looked at some things that Alexander Hamilton wrote about his own life. And I just think it's so weird that he left out all the blackness and hip hop. So, you know, it's so important for somebody else to come in and sort of redefine the expectations of what's already been said, because these first fucking five pages being just the pilot, just what if 105 plus a little bit of background, it's jarring because there is so much more to Mayday than like this weird disproportionate amount. Like seriously, they spend like a sixth of this thing on issue zero. That's weird. It is. And especially because that was like proto Mayday forming out of the chaos of just like throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks. The presence of Normie, it doesn't need this much explanation. It's later as things get more complicated that you might want to spend a little time with it. But so much of this was just playing around and seeing what elements would continue through the story. So to spend this much time revisiting stuff that I don't really think carried through to the end is a waste of our time. One of the reasons that I'm fascinated by this waste of our time, because it is in that many ways, you know, kind of like a a distraction, a bit of a derailment, because it tells us what they want us to remember and what they want us to care about. It's their way of saying, don't worry about that piece of canon, worry about this bit. Because one of the other things that happens when you have a multi-book universe is the other characters react to stuff, stuff gets influenced, stuff gets dropped in favor of bigger storylines. But in a singular universe, you don't really have that opportunity. So things that they don't want you to remember, they need to find a way to kind of highlight the stuff they do so that they don't have to say don't remember the other stuff. They can just remind you the stuff to remember. So that they choose to make it Mr. Nobody, Dark Devil, uh, Kingpin of Crime, and Fantastic Five in these first few pages really tracked for me because as much as I don't care for Mr. Nobody and even think he's kind of a footnote, the Kingpin's disc is such a central element of what we're going to be dealing with, this made-up fucking identity disc, that this kind of fit. Yeah, I mean, Mr. Nobody felt like maybe one step too far for me, but whatever, I can forgive it. That said, Spiral didn't feel like... I remember reading the Mr. Nobody part and thinking like, that's odd. I I guess maybe they'll be bringing him back or something. And then when we hit Spiral, I started to realize that maybe there was something more going on with the plan here. And then Killer Watt was really where I was just like, not all of this is going to appear, obviously. Not all of this is going to be relevant. And not all of this is the stuff that we should remember. So at this point, they're just kind of like trying to summarize their favorite parts of 100 issues in this one book, just kind of for funsies yeah yeah because the the what's the phrase i want to like the jigsaw painting they do on phil is like we spent so much time thinking that phil is like the wet blanket of the spider girl universe and then we hit some points where stuff gets a little weird and it gets a little uneven and she throws some serious shade at phil at different points of this but like man do they manage to recess him so when he doesn't fucking matter at all in the first volume it's pretty convenient yeah it was kind of a place we needed to be anyway and this was one of the ones that i was of two minds about like one i've been over phil for such a long time that the choice to really background him was fine with me on the other hand it's that thing where you're like you dragged me through this for such a long time and eventually i just gave up and was finally like okay you think this character is important i just will allow him to be in as many fight scenes as you want and just try and enjoy his presence. And then that's the point at which you're like, just kidding, he's out of the book. Because there are so many characters that they think we should remember here that are just out of the book. Kane didn't come up. Raptor 
didn't come up. The fact that Avengers Next have their own fucking title and they don't show up until page 10 of the digital of Spider-Girl Zero is kind of shocking. Although, LOL, that super revisionist cast lineup on this cover that's, I guess, supposed to help us transition to the new book. I don't know what to do with this cast. This We're going to get into it, but this Avengers cast was so strange. Oh, like Funny Face, Angel Face, Crazy 8. Again, like they're not coming up in these first few volumes. So it's highlights for the writers even. Like this is, if you wanted to do highlights for the readers, you would do it differently, I think. But, you know, Canis also not really a part of any of this. It's good to have a trip down memory lane. I just, I don't really get the point of this. Well, because part of it has to be what happens on page 12 of the digital, where it says, I also met the Buzz, who employs a high-tech armored battle suit to fight crime. Okay, that all checks out. Thanks to some brilliant detective work on my part, actually, it was pure dumb luck. No, it wasn't, May. Stop underselling yourself every fucking issue of this arc. I learned that he secretly jacked Jameson, a guy in my class at Midtown High. While his parents are off in Europe, JJ lives with his grandparents, Daily Bugle publisher J. Jonah Jameson and his wife, Marla. Okay, most of this checks out, but it really, for a story that feels very omniscient, sort of removes some of JJ's agency from his narrative, but then it gets purely revisionist. JJ and I even dated for a while, which had an added side benefit of twisting my dad way out of shape. No, that was her crush on Norm. This was barely a a footnote. But then we broke up because the guy is like a total dog and can't be trusted. Are you referring to when he stood by the young woman who was the victim of hate crimes? Or are you talking about when he tried to be there for an abuse victim? Which time are you calling him a total dog that he made no advance on another woman? Yeah, and it just kind of reopens the wound of the fact that they were such a perfect high school superhero couple and had so much potential and just at every point they refused to write it together. They refused to do the reveal for Mayday. I can't believe we're still having this conversation but we'll get into it with this book. People in her life still don't know who she is. It just boggles my mind. And I'm so glad you brought up Angel Face and Crazy 8 and Funny Face because where they're situated and the rest of this timeline like Nancy Lou's page. Okay, the fact that they make it look like it came before the Spider Goblin War? What are you talking about? Yeah, the chronology here is just a total mess. We get a mention from Jerry Drew. Happy to see him. Hope he comes up. We get a mention of Green Goblin Uncle Phil. We don't get Golden Goblin Uncle Phil. We get Felicity and Felicia, which is convenient because they're going to show up a bunch. I just don't know. There are some really weird fractals here to building this bigger picture. This was the one that I went back as soon as I started reading issue one and checked because if this were for a new reader to understand what had come before that was relevant to what was about to come, I would have thought the Hardy Thompson section would have been a lot larger and we'll get into why in a second. But even if they weren't that important to the original Spider-Girl series, I would have thought that building on that a little bit for this, even if it's just a little bit of extra flavor text, which they're clearly capable of adding, would have been more beneficial to a new reader who didn't read what came before and needed a little bit of set. Like they could 
could have snuck that in there and it would have been beneficial. This is a tiny blurb that, it, I mean, okay, now technically you know who they are, but when they start appearing and one more of them starts appearing, it, I don't think a new reader would quite understand all of the relevance. But they really don't need to know anything about Angel Face, Funny Face, or Crazy Eight. So what is the point of spending that much time on those and so little time on these? And when Felicity and Felicia, as well as, I guess, you know, yet to be revealed Eugene, really begin to shake up the sort of parallel family vibe, you know, like, it's been so interesting that Felicia had a daughter and that matched Mayday. And while Benjamin does exist, as evidenced further down the page, he's a baby. He's not quite an HGH-riddled, testosterone-filled, toxic jock. And so he doesn't really create the parallel for Gene. And having a normie in the Hardy family, the Hardy Thompson family, maybe breaks up some of the way too many exact even parallels that started to get tiring at times. Yeah. The problem was we started doing this right around the time that I was reading Death of Doctor Strange and there was a great Spider-Man, Ben Riley Spider-Man and Felicia Hardy having this whole conversation. But I just like, I had this moment when we got to the Hardys in Spider-Girl where I just kind of really thought about the background of Peter Parker and Felicia Hardy and how it was an interesting thing to see these characters interact as grown-ups and have very similar lives and, you know, to have Mary Jane and Felicia have a very friendly relationship, to have the daughters have this kind of interesting big sister vibe. It was one of the more interesting things about being stuck in this high school nuclear family with parents who are too overprotective in ways that are silly. The Hardys made that more interesting, even if because this whole thing is determined to stay where it is, it all started to get one note. Yeah, it really does something to increase the value of this universe. It really does break up that one noteness. You know, that's been, I think, one of my biggest complaints this whole time is just that there is sort of an overwhelming sense of one note. And there's a bit more focus on like the last, I don't know, 20 issues of the series over the last like eight pages. But something that I was surprised to learn is so, okay, number one, let's just get it out of the way. Special Agent Arthur Whedon's team not having a name is literally becoming like an in-universe joke at my expense. Yeah. It's getting to the point where it's silly. Yeah. And I love having the Chesbro and Team Spider stuff on the bottom of the page because again, I swear to God, it just really looks like Derek Robertson did this page. Like it just looks different. Yep. But I need to address something I've guess I've been getting wrong this whole time. And I just want to address that. So I'm a big fan of the original Black Tarantula from his time in Daredevil. His time in Daredevil was mostly under Ed Brubaker's pen and spanned just about April 2006 through about February 2001. He was a pretty regular character throughout the Brubaker era and then into the Diggle era for Shadowland. He would take a bit of a break after Shadowland, as did most of those characters, where he would resurface in the end of 2014 and then again in 2016 and 2017 here and there. He's only had four appearances since 2017. And when I saw that, I found myself pretty surprised because further research revealed Black Tarantula proper, the father, Carlos La Muerto, has only ever had 41 appearances and the majority of them are in Daredevil. So I don't know how I'm so obsessed with this character because I think there's actually almost as many appearances of his son. I just need to be clear. Like I've made it sound like Black Tarantula's had a thousand appearances. He first appeared in November of 96 and then would take a break and, you know, not appear again 
again after 1998 until 2006. So, you know, shows what I know about characters that I'm supposedly a pretty big fan of. So for one thing, I never, while we were talking, got the impression from you because I really didn't know anything about Black Tarantula. With a lot of characters in this, I've just kind of made the choice not to do as much research and kind of maybe experience things the way you might have at the time where not everything was as Googleable as it is today. And this is one of those characters where just based on context clues, I assumed that this was, if not the character that Spider-Man encountered due to like ages being different, associated with a character that already existed. So I didn't know anything about the character. As we talked, I didn't really, you know, from you get the impression that this was a major character. I did get the impression that you just majorly enjoyed this character and the kind of like flair for the dramatic that he has and just the absolute enormity of him. He is such a big, loud bodybuilder, straight faggot. I love him. He just, you know, single-handedly shoulder presses 2,000 pounds. It's great. Great character. I knew none of this background on the original Black Tarantula. It really doesn't change a whole lot about his son. He's a riot. He really is one of the best, like, side characters in this book. One of the best villains, kind of one of the best heroes. This speaks to what the value of this book could be with a little more focus, which is, like, a little bit of silliness, the potential for a lot of chaos and possibly, like, bad stuff to be surrounding whatever the story is. But, you know, then to have this kind of over-the-top campy drama that makes it so it can all be enjoyable. I agree completely. And that's the last few pages for me, for sure. The introduction of the black suit, it adds in some potential for recognition and, you know, iconography. And then Venom Symbiote, which I guess is never actually called Dusk, so fuck me again. But, like, Venom Symbiote Normie at the bottom of the page, yeah, that's pretty cool chaos. And then Silly, Elan Dejeuner. The, I mean, number one, she sounds like a bad alcoholic beverage that they would try to push on wealthy white millennials. Elan Dejeuner. Now available in Sparkling Blueberry, right? But beyond that, she really looks like a character from, like, John Ney Ryber and Peter Gross's The Books of Magic, The Fae series. Like, she doesn't look like a human. No, she looks like a very wealthy 65-year-old woman who did not have the kind of connections that Madonna did, but insisted on spending that much on her plastic surgery. And this is what we ended up with. Speaking of what we ended up with, we get that ending of Spider-Girl 100 where MJ is like, stop being Spider-Girl. And everyone's like, what? And then she's in Last Planet Standing where she's clearly Spider-Girl. And then there she's like, oh, well, it's after that that my mom's like, really don't be Spider-Girl now. Uh, Which is really foreshadowing for what's about to happen in the book over the next 12 or so issues. Well, the last few pages of this special sort of peter out in a way that leave me really confused. We get a rehash of her amazing friends one more fucking time. We get Courtney and Moose. Of course, that makes sense. We get DeVita. That's pretty logical. Jimmy, who gets the biggest role increase in this volume. Well, sorry, second biggest because there's Heather. Yeah, Heather, who went from a footnote to a plot point. Huge upgrade. Brad sucks. Megan. Wait, who? And you said you didn't want to see Sandra and here she is. Here she is. Why? Why is Sandra here? Sandra is not one of her amazing friends. Sandra does not like May. Sandra, by the end of the story, does not appreciate anything that May has done. No, not at all. Speaking of things I don't appreciate, <laughs> Chris and Flash and Mrs. Winterhalter all Siblings. look the same age. 
they're triplets. And the description of what happened with Chris is really up there. I did, however, get a little annoyed when I heard him bragging about his bravery and portraying himself as quite the hero. What can I say? He's a normal teenage boy. I knew he was no Captain America and shouldn't have expected him to portray himself in a less than flattering light. Chris assumed I broke up with him because he exaggerated his heroism. The truth is, I just didn't think he fit into my world. But my world has recently changed and who knows what the future could bring. Okay, also, what scary Mad Magazine looking <laughs> goblin is trying to be birthed out of his face? Anyway, and then who the fuck is Mr. Slatery? Because he winds up being like really important in this arc and I have no memory of him. It says he's the assistant principal. I didn't assume there was any leadership at this high school because that's the only explanation for why things would be the way that they are here. So to discover this character exists was quite fast. Yeah, I really hoped that we were finding ourselves in a place where we were kind of free of the high school shenaniganery, but it looks like we are barreling toward what is quite literally the worst that the high school shenanigans have ever had to offer. So here's what I will say in praise of the high school shenanigans. It is way too little and way too late, but they did find a way in this first volume and somewhat in the second one too, to weave the high school problems in with the spider girl problems in a way that felt like giving us a story that unfortunately we needed in the first volume of the original spider girl not 100 issues later but that story of how does she juggle both things in a way that we can see it's these moments where like a friend that she is with as may gets caught up in in a problem that only spider girl can solve and we saw so little of that in the original series she was constantly changing back into May's clothes, then talking about, you know, drama with Moose and Courtney, then changing into Spider-Girl's clothes and having adventures that we cared about. And then, you know, we would lose page time on those adventures because she'd change out of her Spider-Girl costume and go back into Mayday clothes and deal with Davida being mad at her for not showing up to basketball practice. And we just never cared about any of that stuff. This does a better job of stories in which those two things are much more seamlessly woven together but it's way too late. We're in a new series. It's time to do different stuff. This really was the time to give us a time jump or an age jump, even if it, you know, didn't make sense logically. Just get it out of the way and move us somewhere else. So one of the things that I think is kind of charming right away is in Amazing Spider-Girl number one, that opening, that so 1991 Spider-Girl opening, and then the mega jacked Spider-Man, like everything about this first few pages is charming. It's funny in a way that could not have been funny when this series launched because the wounds were still fresh. Yeah, I mean, immediately I thought it was Julia Carpenter and we were getting a very different story. Like this was just pure force works, Julia Carpenter, and that something really different was happening. And it really quickly goes off the rails into silly in a way that's fun. And of course you get the discovery that this is not any Spider-Girl that we know or recognize. This is Jimmy Yama's comic book Spider-Girl. And I think it's funny and cute. I ultimately think it's maybe not the best introduction to this volume. Like if I were a new reader and was picking this up, I'd be like, wait, I thought, 
I was getting that other spider girl on the cover and now it's this spider girl and she's just different enough. The mask is different. Oh, wait, now, wait. So this is that spider girl and I should know that because she's, I guess, May Parker and that's what they're implying to me, but I've never read this. So I don't really understand. And who are these two guys? There's some amount of, while this is really cute, it only works if you are relying on this being no one's first issue. And I feel like somebody's trying to say something when we've got May saying, Jimmy, you know Spider-Girl. She's nothing like this. And Jimmy's response is, you just don't understand comics, Mayday. We had to make some creative choices to appeal to the fans. I feel like this is Tom DeFalco maybe pushing back on any potential criticism that might be coming up around this book. I have to assume, legitimately, it really is. I mean, my notes say that the a- the actual what the fuck is that it's a little too meta and almost as if Spider-Girl is almost as if the Spider-Girl team is still playing a game that they're not quite in on yet. Yeah, like the fact that Mayday is the person being like, you guys know me, write me properly. And then they, through their stand-ins, are like, no, you don't even get it. It's just funny and silly. And, you know, the whole thing made me chuckle, but there is always a sense of like, oh, but what if we did have our shit together because i think mayday having a nice normal day just strolling through the city is sweet but that it reads kind of like a musical number kind of reaches for a pastiche that it's not really connecting with there's a sense of idyllic 60s-ness that it's kind of conjuring but because it's not going all the way in on the idyllicness of it because it's stopping a bit short of the end it feels like we're not really getting enough to follow it and i i get what they're going for and I understand the pressures of being under a big relaunch are a bit different than coasting at issue 78 like and no one's saying coasting but like there's just not enough for me here especially because wait Simone De- Simone DeSantos her new horrible kind of somewhat offensive stereotypical rival is also running for student council but has all the time to steal her boyfriend that May doesn't have because she's running for student council I don't understand this weird high school that they're creating that is half Pleasantville, half Mean Girls. That is the perfect description and don't understand it and just can't really care about it. You know, even at this point, you're not going to convince me that this is this is May's element. Even when you show her having that like easy breezy, like I know everybody, everybody likes me. There's my name on the poster. Here's all my friends. Not even shook by my rival. Here's my boyfriend. He sucked too. It just, I get, like you said, I get what they're going for and it is a very smooth introduction to all of this high school stuff. If you're an old reader you might be feeling like I'm past the high school stuff. If you're a new reader you might not realize that you're going to get sick of this shit real quick. I'd graduated high school before this came out, right? Right. And I can tell you, really Letterman's jackets didn't have that like gay proper cursive kind of gene on the front. You had like your last name somewhere on the sleeve or like this is so visually disconnected and that's okay you know maybe this is the point where we have to start talking about things slightly out of order but the student council drama here this is not the west wing and when at one point davida's like i put a poll in the field i want to be like who did you poll the lunch ladies legitimately and then you know she's like oh like underclassmen like it's 
It's ridiculous. And even like Mr. Slattery's in on it too. He's like, the students deserve a president who will represent them. I feel like there's a legal thing at this high school where this is an actual job, which would be funny. Like, go with it. Also, what is with all of these Parker is a quitter posters and all of like, I can't even imagine that this school is like Mayday Parker, girl who was never like all state, girl who was like never the best in the school or the best in the county or the best in the state. She was never on any major, you know, there was never a storyline about how she was getting recruited away to basketball camp. Like she is just a decent player in a midtown school district who has decided that academics are where she thrives more than sports. And so people are literally defacing and hate mongering her property. What the fuck school does she go to? This is beyond anything that makes sense with the conceit construct they've asked us to allow for this high school. Yeah, I mean, you would have to do a lot of work to set up the idea that the most important thing at this, or even, you know, a top three sport at this school that put them on the map, that is what they're known for, that's how they get funding, that's how they get notoriety, is the girls' basketball team. And that's partially not fair, it shouldn't be like that, but I don't think it's plausible to readers at the time that this would be the case. And so if you want to sell me on that, even if even if it was boys' sports, you would still need to spend some time establishing that this is something that the whole school revolves around. When we started with the sports storyline, it was really that that's what May's life revolved around, and she decided that she was going to give it up because it wasn't fair that she had this advantage. It was really about this being her thing that she was going to sacrifice to go on to the next thing. We never got anything about how this was really important to the school or to anything. And that came up much later with this thing about Lash Thompson and then, you know, Felicity's in the mix and they're upset that she won't join the team again. But that really was a too little too late moment as well, because we just saw this school functioning for so long with barely any mention of the basketball team, except for the fact that May wasn't on it anymore. Just the legwork wasn't done. And, you know, we're still on it and it's becoming like a slur. I don't know. And I guess this is the first time that putting all of that like context together and then looking at this page. Yeah, they really are trying to create a much larger than life reality for the basketball team. And it's kind of in the same way we had a similar complaint about the narrative on the Age of Heroes. You make such a big deal about this Age of Heroes, about how important these heroes are. It kind of turns out there really aren't enough heroes and most of them are Avengers. And every villain is a villain based on somebody from the 1960s to the 1980s and everybody is just standing in for somebody else and it feels as though the basketball scenario at the high school is sort of a a parallel for the hero scenario in the real world where there really isn't enough being done to connect the dots such that we can accept that that's why this whole world works the way it does exactly that I'm I'm open to anything you can convince me like the idea that the basketball team is the hallmark of this school is again it's stupid it's as stupid as like the student council president mattering but you could convince me it's comic books there's aliens the idea that the basketball team is important isn't a hard sell but you do have to sell it you can't just put it in my house and tell me I bought it and I know there's someone out there who's like no so you know I was class president and at my school that meant I had a budget of $50,000 to spend on all of the crystal and whores I wanted and you know then I would say okay 
okay, then yeah, you are Simone DeSantos. Because I am sure she spends it on expensive alcohol and boy whores. She, first of all, looks like a kid version of Alain Dejeuner. And second of all, looks exactly like Felicity, which doesn't help. Also, her widow's peak is severe. And she is a goddamn nightmare. And I do not believe a school like this, where at one point she fixes the vice principal's tie for him. Like, it's so sexual. And I do not believe this school where there's people, you know, filming the girl's locker room and then filming the boy's locker room and people have spider girl costumes in their locker. It would not go this far where the student council president would have that kind of power. Yeah, I I agree with that. I It just, it doesn't work. I wish it did. Things that don't work, but I wish did Caitlin. Oh, you mean adult Courtney travel back in time to hang out with herself in May? Oh, so you've seen the blowjob scene from the time traveler's wife. <laughs> I don't, Ron, friends, why, like, we're just getting so much of this. And, you know, the problem in the previous series was all white blonde dudes, which at the very least, it was like, I couldn't care less about any of these guys. So that's fine. But now we're seeing more and more character types that show up way too close in proximity to each other. And it just feels like there are 16 models of person in this universe. And everybody is one of them. And it makes it kind of hard to get through the book sometimes because not like in a mean way I'm not you know this is outside of my usual poking fun but like I did think at times Mona had a lot in common with Mary Jane and seriously if you're flipping pretty fast you can mistake Caitlin for Chris I'm not even being ridiculous it could happen and it has to do with the coloring and the styling and the trying to keep everything so homogenized right but the narrative that they build in this whole location with you know Moose isn't talking to Courtney. Okay. And now they're volunteering at the abuse house. But here's the thing. They're shocked that this guy is coming to harass the people staying at the at the shelter, which, but you know, those people are literally there to get away from an abusive person. So May, why are you surprised that a bad guy is coming after a victim? Like, not only do you seem like you don't know anything about super heroics, but clearly you guys are volunteering at this, at this shelter. How do you know nothing about it? How have you had no training, no preparation. You're literally a danger. And it just, it's one of those moments that feels like a disservice to May because she is a superhero and you would think this would be something that she could invest in for her time when she is not fighting the hobgoblin, that she would be able to use her powers and her strength to ensure that women who were victims of domestic abuse were able to get away safely, were protected, were placed in places that would afford them the ability to get out of bad situations. That feels like the kind of person that May is. And, you know, that's that is through the writing. I'm not I I think that we've established her as that kind of character. But then also within the writing, we have these moments where it's like she both is that character and is completely failing to be that person in this moment. And it just is jarring. And I think that's actually really best exemplified by the exchange with her dad and then the basketball scene with Davida. I love that her dad is like, look, MJ, I get it. Spider is in her blood. And if you've never heard my 90s theme song, then I don't know how to help you. But you would know that it's radioactive spider blood. And she's never going to be able to shake it, Thwip Thwip. And Mary Jane's like, yeah, but I grounded her spider.
yourself. So don't worry, because you can totally reprogram the personality out of your child by forcing them into conversion therapy. And then we get May being like, I love Lycra. And I'm like, girl, there's easier ways to do it than this really forced basketball game where the fact that she has spider sense and Davida steals the ball. It doesn't seem like May is taking it easy. It seems like she's just sort of clueless. Which is one of those things where it's like it both fits the character and doesn't. And I don't know what to do with it. Things that fit the character, but I don't know what to do with it. I just happen to be walking through a park and I happen to see the guy who happened to be trying to go to the shelter to find his girlfriend. The shelter I happen to know people who work at because I happen to work there now. Like the amount of, well, doesn't it just, isn't it just, how doesn't it just, isn't it so gets really annoying. Almost as annoying as the implication that Daredevil, that Dark Devil is the only hero that wears red. Because this is not Hell's Kitchen. We don't do the thing here where it's because it's all happening in this tiny area. It's totally plausible that you would just walk into a situation that was relevant to your super heroics. This is like kind of a residential neighborhood. This type of thing, it's just not really plausible. I get, you know, it's a narrative economy thing and I can hand wave on it. But this issue has been asking me to do a lot of hand waving on stuff that I I don't want to in the first place. So by the time we get here, I'm still in for the ride, but I'm just kind of asking what what are we doing? Oh, we're doing Molotov cocktails. Mm. We're doing Molotov cocktails and we're okay. So when they finally reveal that Mona is kind of like a shitbird, you know what I mean? Mona's not great. Like she it's that joke I love about uh, from Modern Family about like, you know, you're a mob wife. You don't like that I'm obnoxious, but it gets us out of parties, right? And you're happy to let me be unpleasant for it, right? Like Mona kind of comes off kind of like, oh no, my I got mixed up with my boyfriend, but she's like ready to be on the run, dodge the cops. Like she's ready to live that kind of life. And what disc glows? <laughs> that was the most frustrating thing for me. I thought she had a Norn stone in there. <laughs> I, I was I was like, okay, so what do I know that glows green? So obviously it's not kryptonite because this is Marvel. Okay, so what do I know that grows green? Because a goblin thing. Uh, who else is green? Is a Hulk thing. And then it's a fucking disc. It's a green glowing disc. One of those green glowing, famous green glowing, glowing green discs. Sure. Sure. I also don't really get the save people from the car sequence. I think that was meant to distract May from Caitlin. But a lot happens that, I don't know. The one thing that this sequence really, really got right was other than some definitely not New York amount of space inside of Cafe Indigo. That actually does kind of feel like a like a crappy little dive bar kind of dive cafe that people would all hang out at if they were friends. Yeah, sure. Okay, so let's talk about it. Gene is huge and he is clearly drawn to be a man. He is given man proportions in a way that none of the other males in May's age rung are given. Other than when he is the buzz, JJ is boyish. Brad was boyish. Moose is kept doughingly unthreatening. And then there's Gene Thompson, who's a fucking big, huge man, and basically says, we're gonna get it in. Let me know when. And May is like, um... 
and Mary Jane is watching on from the distance like get it in and I'm like this whole sequence reads very male perspective it's odd they go right in with issue two establishing that this dude is not the best and that May is not doing the best by not recognizing that but this particular page feels like there was some missing element and maybe even it was the additional element of Mary Jane peeking in and smiling that just like it's creepy and it's definitely not intended to be I think you're supposed to think this is like the idyllic moment for these two before we see everything go off the rails and instead it just feels like I don't think you know anything about teens dating in 2006 it really feels like this is the start to a scene from stepmom's fuck where she's gonna be waiting inside to join them and it's I'm thrilled but like you know Peter Green Flash Thompson's son ain't so I I don't know there really is something I get what you even mean like because she wants her daughter not to live a superhero life she wants her daughter to live like a normal people life so by seeing her be in a harmless romantic situation it's really the best possible situation for Mary Jane if I have like one real 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 big ding about this last page for real it is definitely that we're not supposed to be like oh my god I wonder who's in that green jacket and orange gloves and orange hoodie outfit right like I'm not meant to not be sure that that's Roderick right I really don't know they really do try and give you a big reveal at the end but I think that's also offset by the horrifyingly defaced abused woman that he's grabbing by the face as we see that it is in fact the hobgoblin yeah okay so it's a hideous tapestry of nightmares got it and that really is the unfortunate start to this this restart for amazing spider girl i just thought with so many opportunities to take all of the lessons from the previous run we would go somewhere bold and new and exciting and instead it sort of feels already like we're rehashing elements of the first run she's in a not quite spider girl costume that's basically athleisure wear she's hiding that she's spider girl from her parents she's stuck in interpersonal drama with her friends it just doesn't really feel like we're growing no and in a lot of ways it feels like we've backslid a bit one place that felt like a non-backslide was particularly that phil and pete felt like adults I mean, don't get me wrong. They are actually bit players in an episode of CSI. Like, they don't matter. Briscoe wouldn't even call them by their first names. Seriously. But it's interesting to see that they want to keep Pete and Phil a vital part of the storytelling. It is interesting. Seeing the half Spider-Man face on Peter, which is a repeated refrain for Mayday, it always just puts me on edge because of the feeling of, like, they're never gonna let go of Peter being the true spider person and that always be a looming thing of like if May ever screws up too badly Peter will step in and take care of the thing and that's always what it feels like and that's always my problem when I see any sort of image associating Peter with Spider-Man is May fucked up so bad that Peter has to come fix it and it's never May is in the kind of trouble where my last desperate Hail Mary is to put the suit on and hope that I can save her from 
something that is bigger than even I could have taken on. This is just my last ditch effort. That's something that would be beautiful and like a father's love and I would really buy. But it always feels like she's on probation and should she screw up too badly, I will step in and fix it. And that's just my association with that half mask on Peter. So it it put me on edge. Because it is so clearly her visual. Like they've even refined it for this volume and they give him her refined version of it. It feels like you gave her something unique. What is he going to do? Be able to repel stuff next? Like, come on. Speaking of things that repel me, I don't have a whole lot of interest in the phrase, May, where have you been ever again? I'm so tired because in you, can I, like in real life, we would assume she has a cocaine problem. Yeah. Like the levels to which she is becoming irresponsibly unsafe about her own personal life. People would think she's got a serious drug problem at this point. Every volume, there's a new way to express. The easier, better thing to do unequivocally is just to let Courtney and DeVita of all people know that she is Spider-Girl. Like even Moose, I would have said was totally fine. The thing is, we've never established one of these characters as not being pretty reasonable and trustworthy with like a big secret like this, let alone what they would do for May, who they all absolutely adore. And we're just twisting ourselves in knots for these stories that I don't really buy and repeating these refrains that I don't care about. It it just, we've done the story of May, where have you been so many times? Why can't we do the story of, I know exactly where you've been, talk to me, or like maybe you can't talk to me because we're in school, but we'll give each other the look that means I know you're Spider Girl and I'm dying to hear what happens next. Not to hyper-personalize it, but funny story, so I'm gay. And what? I know, right? It's hard to tell because I'm usually talking about how pan I am. But so as a queer person growing up, you often come up with like a secret language that you can talk about your queerness with other queer people. Mm-hmm. And that was a thing where like if I had hooked up with a guy and somebody was asking me what, what happened last night, and I didn't want to say it. And I was like, um, yeah, yeah, no, after I after we hung up, I took care of that. And other people were like, okay, obviously I'm missing something, but your friend gets what you're saying. And you'd be like, no, I'm sorry. It's just one of those personal jokes where if I explained it, you'd be like, that's stupid, right? It's like that. Oh my God, no, but how are you? And you like change the topic, mm-hmm. you know, like they can't even get that down right. And that's maybe perhaps where the straight white male of it all shines through. If you don't understand code switching, you don't think to write in code switching. But we are at a point where if Spider Girl has not created a shorthand code switch. Instead, we still hear her say things like, no, talk openly about me being Spider Girl. The hallway is empty. We're talking about a high school where people are taking video footage of underage locker rooms. What do you mean the empty hallway is fine? And you know, at this point, Buffy has had its entire run, a show that did a really good job, despite its straight white male horror writer, did a really good job of doing that metaphor and showing us the code switching and showing us the girl who had a secret who had to figure out how to talk around it. And it does just feel like I refuse to take any lessons from the world at large refuse to hear anything new. This is the way it is for May, and we're going to keep writing it like this until we are told we have to stop. And we do see them attempt to continue exactly like what you said. They're going to keep writing May like this, but they, they attempt to push her somewhere more mature with this Caitlin story. Like, look how mature her concerns are. Now, this is going to sound really silly, but one of the things that I definitely think is this book always feels a little bit like it's touching on television shows, and we are getting very close to that, you know, 
know, the age of the Grey's Anatomy medical show at this point. And I feel as though we spend a lot of time in hospitals on in this book. And by making it Caitlin and not Courtney, not DeVita or Moose, it's not somebody broke their ankle or there was a hit and run. It's this woman was a victim of revenge domestic violence that destroyed property. There is an attempt to make this a little bit more Degrassi the next generation, but because it's a bunch of characters that we don't really care about, we don't really have access to, and it is shades of a previous story, the saccharin of it. Like, no. And this does kind of start the weaving of the superhero life with the May life. Caitlin is somebody who they work with, who May works with as Mayday, not as Spider-Girl, but whose attack is related to stuff that would be a Spider-Girl concern. That's, yes, I do appreciate it does age her up a little bit. It does age up her concerns and it does tie these things together so they're not so separate from each other that it's jarring when we go from one story to the next. But at the same time, yeah, Caitlin is not really a character that we care about. The detective who's going to have a big part in all this is not a character that we care about. And Mona is not someone we care about and what she has in her bag isn't something we care about. So it's just, I appreciate the attempt to give us a story in a little bit of a different way than they have in the past. Again, like, it's too little and it is too late. But one of the things that I'm such a goddamn sucker for with this book is that I believe that May Parker truly wants the best possible world. So something that's really important is recognizing that sometimes characters say the worst fucking things in the world, you know? Like, when I think about the woman Kate Pride is, the modern, strong, self-possessed, sort of bisexual, depends on how many white claws she's had kind of girls that she's become woman that she's become she's Kate now you know I think about the X-Men the end version of her that's like you know basically Laura Rosalind president of mutantum and I want that for Mayday like I so believe in Mayday Parker more than ever because as the book gets less even Mayday herself's perseverance becomes purer and more pure and you know she really always thinks she's doing right by others she doesn't even always think she's doing the best thing for herself but she always thinks she's doing right and i believe in mayday parker like that's my main takeaway i believe in mayday parker yeah i i think that's true i believe in mayday too what is at her core and what defalco really understands and wrote into every single issue of this book regardless of anything else is the soul of a superhero is a character that i can believe would become a superhero not just because the story of how she got the powers works but because her drive and motivation issue to issue just gives you that classic this could even get problematic because superheroes don't always have the right answer aren't always going to do the right thing but this is what she was made for I think a lot of times with children of superheroes who become superheroes and generational superheroes you get stuff that like on paper it works but just the way the character is written it's you know it's like when a kid whose parent is an actor becomes an actor and you're like oh you weren't really an actor you just kind of had connections and now you're stuck in this business and now I have to watch you in movies I hate and so many characters kind of give you that vibe oh your dad was a superhero so now you're one but I don't care about you but May May's got it May is somebody who I would absolutely be eager to see in stuff today and it all comes out of this it just I wish we were able to put her 
in situations befitting of her level of enthusiasm for the line of work that she's in. Because we wind up being so bogged down by the just absolute unfortunate dumbness of this whole cell phone debacle. You know, number one, it's hard to care about the reused looking avalanche style sonic wave blaster villain. Yeah, it's great to see that Mayday's hurt and that it actually carries over. I enjoy that. That's something that was kind of missing from these stories. But again, Simone is so evil. It almost ruins the book for me. Mary Jane thinking that she can be like, I will sue you and this school. I think this is meant to be powerful. But number one, it looks like Benjamin is on Quaaludes. Number two, she just comes off Super Karen. And there's so many things that detract from how beautiful Mayday is that it's just like, I wish Mayday had a universe that supported her the way she deserved. And Mary Jane is one of the really stark examples there because this book, this series, this universe started with Mary Jane being such an anchor point for her journey as Spider-Girl and really saying like, yeah, you should absolutely do this. And that's why it was so jarring when she came in against it at the end of the last series. We're still stuck on that, whatever, setting that aside. When she comes in in a moment like this and has to bail Mayday out, I really want to see that understanding because May is like, oh no, I screwed up here and I'm caught and I can't tell him I'm Spider-Girl so we, I just have to go with I was wrong. And this is another example where seeing that shorthand where MJ coming in and having some like, I've got to take her out because her dad's really sick and then like they leave and wink, wink, I got you out of trouble. That would have been really fun. But to have her barge in in this way that just doesn't feel Mary Jane, it doesn't work because for all everybody in this situation knows or for all the person in authority knows, May was in the wrong. It just feels like she is out of the loop of her daughter's superhero-dom and she was really the primary driving force behind it when this all started. So it's disappointing to see and May deserves better. Because the sort of thing that happens when you have a character like Mary Jane who has to be significant, like even if she's out of character, it needs to be a big amount of out of character because she's so big that it winds up dominating someone else's story where now she's out of, now May has to be out of the suit. Now May's back in the suit. Now, you know, it's a lot of back and forth. I don't care for Mary Jane keeping secrets from Peter. Like I didn't care for it when Peter kept secrets from Mary Jane. That's not something that is a necessary element of a marriage to tell. Like, yes, everybody has personal interiority and secrets, but that's not an example of a strong marriage that I root for. No, and you can do like one big secret because somebody told me they were going to hurt May and I kept it secret because I didn't know how to keep her safe. Or you can do like, you know, something I've never told you is I always wanted to be a writer. You can give me one of those two things, but you can't give me like, I let maybe Spider-Girl again. I didn't really tell you about it, but I'm definitely going to tell you about it. But I just want to see how I feel about it first. Like that's not, that doesn't give me anything for this character or for this marriage, both of which I think are amazing parts of May's life, amazing parts of the Parker family canon. Like they're great. They're an iconic family. I don't want their secret stuff wasted on dumb little story details that we know are mutable. And it's part of what winds up detracting from the revitalization that this should have been for Mayday. This should have been a great time for her to come back in and be all excited and feel high energy. And instead, what I feel like I get is Mayday once again coming up against tiny roadblocks that make her seem less effective. At least this time, there's maybe a reasonable bad guy who gets to be a bad guy. One of our big complaints is that every bad guy, there's a reason she has to put up with them. But 
But like Detective Drasco is just, you know, bad and sucks. Yeah. I also want to say I'm realizing as we talk about the Mary Jane stuff that one of the things that could have been really interesting for an issue zero was like a family rehash of everything that had happened as a like the conversation would be about convincing Mary Jane that Mayday was okay to continue to be Spider Girl. Like the family sitting around a table arguing that like this still makes sense. And in doing so, rehashing the really important parts of the previous series that you needed to know so that when we started off this series, she was allowed to be Spider Girl and she was back in it because it's a tough thing to pick up on when you're reading this. But May is grounded as Spider Girl. She is not allowed to be Spider Girl by her parents. She's still doing kind of Spider Girly things, of course, because that's the point of the series. But because it's being bogged down in these little details and she's sneaking around doing it, you don't have the triumphant relaunch of the Spider Girl story with her in full regalia doing the thing. You have this kind of sneaking around trying to get it done with high school stuff happening and new characters that we don't care about and old characters not really acting how we want them to. And it just doesn't have that big oomph that you would want from a relaunch. Because for every big thing they try to do, they also kind of balance it out with a sort of low moment. Something that you had said a lot that I really felt was accurate in the back end of the original 1 through 100 was that the book always did a little bit better when there were this, you know, part X of Y attached. Yet here, I don't really think that that was quite as successful on their part. I agree with your your assessment of it earlier. Here, I feel like they've missed their formula because Amazing Spider-Girl number three, having this bizarrely different villain who, yes, they find a way to fit it in, but it doesn't feel organic. It winds up just having some cool iconography, but nothing really worth telling. Yeah, I think what this is suffering from with regards to, you know, the tight issue arcs and story arcs that I was liking at the end of the last series was they're now trying to do that, but also do, you can pick up any issue, here's a monster of the week, let's keep things light and not get too complicated with the continuity. But for one thing, they start creating a very complex narrative around this disc and what everybody wants out of this situation. And then I think they are overestimating the degree to which we wouldn't be willing just to sink into even a new reader at this point. It's 2006. Like comic readers, the sophistication is there. At this point, anybody who is interested in reading this book, even if they're new, will sink into a full story that doesn't have to be like the one issue that I pick up and enjoy. I agree. You know, rule of thumb is usually I give it an arc. I know very few people that hit a point where they're like, no, I won't keep reading if I don't get a one and done to get me in. You kind of need something that brings you back. It's one of the reasons you try not to close out all of your storylines at any given point. So it seems like a good time to jump out. You always want something keeping people coming back. And, you know, I think in this instance, one of the dangling threads that they're trying to keep running is Mary Jane knows, but Peter doesn't. That doesn't work for me. Gene needs all of Mayday's attention or he becomes a psycho dick. Doesn't work for me. Davida is this side of becoming an abusive stage mom. That doesn't work for me. This is some weird danglers. Don't forget Wes is there too. Okay, am I supposed to ship them by the end of this? <laughs> just stop just throwing random dudes into this book and having us be like, oh, but what about Mayday and that guy? No, I'm never gonna do it. Speaking of random guys, I evidently, okay, first of all, Mr. Kirkle can't, can't, can't. And I love that, you know, this whole thing is like, where is Mona Carlo? Like, where is Monte Carlo? This is upsetting. So, you know, we've got this low life Charlie Kirkle, Chuck Kirkle, okay? And he 
winds up getting this kingpin disc and Drasco's interviewing him. And my favorite thing in the world is because they're afraid we wouldn't be able to recognize him otherwise, despite the dialogue that makes it very clear who he is, Hobgoblin has to spend all of his time in costume, no matter where he is. In this case, it looks like he is in a subway station as the train is starting to come in, but he is at all times in costume. Listen, when you take a role on like this, it's very difficult to come out of character. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I, I'll give you that. Okay. I He's just Jared Lettowing this whole thing. It's a bummer because he was really hot, but I'll take it. I'll also take any appearance from the Hardy women. I love them. I think Felicity and Felicia are great. And I sort of think Felicity being like, yeah, my brother is bad news, I guess. Anyway, no, it's fine. You can fuck him. I just think you can do better. Like there's something really, I don't know. I don't know. Felicity remains my favorite part of this book. 100%. First off, when she says you can do better, she's talking about herself. This is the couple yes. that I ship. Felicity and May, yes. that's where it's at. That is headcanon that I choose to believe, but clearly what she's talking about is you're better off spending your time being Spider Girl. I think those two things are related, but we'll set it aside. I love that she is so supportive of the superhero game, and she's that friend that I've been looking for, and May does not spend enough time with her. She's the one who knows. She's keeping the secret. Sure, she shows up sometimes and is a really obnoxious Scarlet Spider, but she's getting better. She's just such a great character. She's ribbing May a little bit, but she's not doing what Jean and Davida are doing, which is getting borderline abusive. Yeah, agreed. She did it at one point, and then she learned her lesson when she got over her mom's being gay. <laughs> and and then she stopped abusing May Day to help her dad out, who I'm convinced still has gambling debts. And I think he's brought his son back to the school, and his son is helping him run mob stuff. I'm convinced. This all feels very plausible. All right, so Bitter Frost is not just a fascinating new Emma Frost miniseries, but she is here to throw snow at people because... I don't know. I get kind of like a, a vibe that maybe perhaps she is implicitly very much on the junk and Wayne did not help her get off the junk and ultimately she just died near a vat of toxic waste or didn't die, I guess. And now she's a spooky ice ghost. First of all, great Shiva cosplay. Number two, what? Yeah, the point of this all is to tie into the Mona Carlo like drug users and like people doing petty crimes part of this part of New York, which is just kind of unnamed because it's all over the place. So we get this villain that, you know, has an origin story that is tied to all that, but it's very over the top and dramatic for somebody who it seems like died of a heroin overdose by some slut. Yes, because I mean, there's truly nothing worth mocking about, you know, struggling with addiction. Not one bit. What we're more addressing is the haphazard way those real life realities are being contrasted with this superhero story to make certain people seem more sympathetic. You know, a person with an addiction problem isn't a footnote in somebody else's journey. And, you know, it just doesn't come off with a whole lot of authenticity. It's just not one of their better storytelling moments. No. And uh, speaking of things that are never one of the better storytelling moments, fuck, he's back. Uh, handsome Richie Valentine is here and he's clearly had work done. He's looking all sorts 
sorts of face put back together. And I'm kind of like, ugh, Richie Valentine. But then I'm like, it's a mean to Chesbro. I'm in. Yeah, if Chesbro's in the mix, I'm excited. I, like, how did this crazy little man become like one of the best parts of this book? One of the things that does really work in this is people who are a little bit silly and a little bit campy that have the potential to introduce real conflict for May and give her real story stuff to chew on. And Chesbro is a perfect example of like a little corner of her world that can be that. Because for me, it's definitely not Drasco. I like him feeling like he owes Spider-Girl a favor, but he doesn't do anything for me to increase the quality of the book. No, he feels like a character that we ought to have been introduced to a version of him much earlier on in the original story so that there was somebody tied to the like active detective part of the police force, not the part where Peter's at, but somebody who was tied to that, who was kind of like moral gray area, will they, won't they, can may trust him. He kind of almost feels like the other side of the coin of Agent Whedon in that there is a potential allyship there, but there's also a lot of potential problems. It's just, I don't care about a random old man that the hobgoblin is yelling at at the start of this series that I've already read a hundred issues of a previous series that gave me a lot of characters that I already care about. What if I told you, TK, that I had a character for you to care about? Talk about Mad Dog. What if, what if I said to you, we start with a base of Spider Jerusalem and then we kind of dress him like a gay deathlock, kind of, and then we intentionally put him in yellow lifts, put him in a weightlifting belt, slap on some Punisher gear, give him a funny little claw, and then make him a bad stand-in for Dog the Bounty Hunter. Hey, don't forget his extra-large Harry Potter lightning scar on the side of his head. Oh man, I really did him a disservice with that. You know what? I'm also going to throw in his blade glasses. I don't understand why Ron Friends only thinks there's one kind of shoe, and it's a large, thick, slip-on boot. Very Skechers, 1998. It's the only shoe that exists in this universe. Well, this one comes with giant calf supports. Which we all need, so fair enough. You know, I could not get over how much I kept thinking that he wasn't wearing pants over and over again. It's like so close to the color of his arms. It's like uh, he's got normie tattoos, but just all over his life. Yes, yes. I'm criminally obsessed with this character's design. First of all, he is the Gilderoy Lockhart of Punisher characters. He is whoever you would cast as Lobo on a sitcom. This guy is the ultimate joke, and I'm very much here for him. Agree, 100%. He, this is a great tribute to the cover of Amazing Spider-Man 129, the first appearance of Punisher. It's a terrific tribute to it. You know, he's a wild bounty hunter who has a bunch of other characters tech. He's a Marvel version of Dog the Bounty Hunter and he is really just here to point out that not every person in the Marvel Universe who is an adult that quote-unquote is a hero makes all the right decisions all the time for all the right reasons. I think he's also here to point out that homosexuals do exist in the MC too. Oh my god, he's so gay with Daniel, right? Yes. Oh my god, they're fucking, they're fucking, right? Yes. Oh my god, that was the most textual gay thing. <laughs> I. It's pride, and that is the most textual gay thing I've read in a really long time. Yeah, I was shocked and amused. Like, the fact that they're gay twins too, like, it just everything about it, I don't think all of it was intentional, but holy shit, does it work. It is unbelievable Believable. What a fancy man he is. <laughs> and 
he gives me big nonstop Popper's Queen verse energy. Yes. And I am just really in awe of the tensile strength of his jockstrap. But on to the, you know, actual hero of this book. May is really in a situation that I hate more than anything. You know, I feel bad for Pete and Phil having to deal with, you know, the world's, you know, American gladiator. But like, I don't even know what to do with how horrible Gene is. And like, now I'm starting to think that he's the one defacing everything to neg her. I kind of wondered about that myself. He just sucks. And he's like, why won't you just sit at my football practice? Yeah, well, why don't you just sit at my basketball practice, bitch? Yeah, and I hate that they're contrasting it with Davida being like, oh, they're both bad, where one of these people is like a toxic psychopath and Mayday's about to end up in a Sandra situation. And one of them is Davida, who's just too into the election. And then, oh then, there is Simone and the most over-the-top Gloria from Modern Family imitation. And it just, it horrifies me. I don't understand why her hair is cut like Destiny's helmet so her face looks like a mask that she's wearing. (laughs) She's a monster. All right, speaking of monsters, number one, when Roderick imagines his brother, he imagines him wearing a little (laughs) mascot. (laughs) Number two, he imagines his brother giving him side eye. This is the most effective page talking about two flamboyant competitive brothers I've ever seen. Yep, I completely agree. All right, now let's just get to my favorite page in the history of anything ever, ever. I am so in love with this guy. Holy shit, man. It's not that he's big and it's not that he's strong, but Black Tarantula, number one, having the craziest thigh gap I have ever seen on a non-wishbone, legitimately. But number two, he is so NBD about what he's weightlifting, the conversations he's having. It's not that he's so strong. It's that he's not looking back at the explosion. And that's what's so hot. Like, it is so difficult to get a character just right when the character's whole point is big dick energy. It is so hard to really get it right. It gets so over the top and so cringe embarrassing. But Black Tarantula really is cool, guys. Don't look back at explosions. And it just works. Yeah, I don't know why exactly it does but it does because there is something that is a little bit over the top about it but it's also like cool guys don't look back at explosions but I think at the same time the traditional wisdom is cool guys don't simp over high school girl but if you do it in the right way and again we are assuming that he is 18 years old that's the only way this works him simping over May of all people where where he's like I will do anything for spider if I'm doing crime and spider girls in the way we stop doing the crime. Yes, that's what's so hot. Yes, you're absolutely right. It is something that we say is not cool for like real men to do, but the way they do it here, it is charming and great in every way. It never comes off as condescending. You know, it never comes off as Peter being like, should she screw up? I will show up. Black Tarantula never shows up and is like, hey, I'm going to fix all the problems. I shouldn't say never. He does sometimes and it's a little charming and cute, but a lot of times he's in there doing crime and he's like, oh, 
stop the crime may has shown up. And I just think there's something so great about that. And it's that I don't believe it's artifice. Yeah. Like with so many of these characters, you're just waiting for that, you know, the dock and wine moment that I always bring up. I poisoned that exact bottle of wine knowing that if I depressed you by making you think that this thing happened, you would drink it, breaking your sobriety and it would poison you. Mwahaha. Like terrible, awful writing. This isn't a machination. This isn't a complex thing. He's just like, oh, something's in my way. Mm. Oh, it's Spider Girl. Stop. It's the chill that makes it so good. Yep. And things I wish were more chill. Heather, get her out. Get it out. I don't want it. Goodbye, Heather. This isn't good. I do hate it. But at the same time, there's something to be said for how far we've come from the game of gay chicken being played by Moose and Jimmy Yama to Jimmy Yama stealing Heather from another dude to this is like a long standing healthy relationship for the two of them. And she stopped being such a bitch to Mayday and is showing up to support her as class president, the most important role in the entire school in the world. Yeah. Leader of now the that Galactus world. is gone. It's <laughs> this is this is it. It's like it used to be Galactus, then this. Now it's just this. Okay. I love that point. You really did change my mind because I hadn't really thought about it on such a big scale. And so, all right, let's, let's do it. Anybody who really needs to know the thesis of this show going forward, it's all going to come down to Amazing Spider Girl, issue number four, page 13 of 24 on the digital. I have never seen anything so homoerotic in a Marvel comic book in my life. And I'm including Peter Quill having gay sex. Yeah, this truly is the pinnacle. Nothing happening on Krakoa at this moment meets what we see in this series of five panels. And it's all of the language. It is specifically, you want a starring role, Daniel? Tonight could be your night. We know this guy lives his life on camera. He puts what is clearly a phallic kind of thing right at Daniel's throat. And he, you know, says, would I betray my own brother to save myself a beating? Absolutely not. You'll betray him for $10,000, just like last time. Actually, I was hoping for 20000 He just said, you're going to bring over several friends. This is the, the I'm thousand percent, this is Mad Dog of Finland. I am without breath at just how fucking gay this is. The way that Mad Dog is leaning against the wall, one arm next to the side of Daniel's head, leaning against the wall, legs crossed, stroking his chin with his weird claw hand. All of these fucking eyebrows way up to God. Like, Mm. I don't even know what else to say. The way Daniel's mouth is formed in that bottom panel, he's either about to slurp a noodle or do something to this man's finger. And I promise you, it's the claw one. I can't get over it. It's so good. It's so good. It's literally so good. Like, I'm not, we've made some jokes about how gay this or that is. No, this is just, that's just gay sex. Yep. Uh, Meanwhile, Roderick must be fully aware that that's what's happening. There's no question. Yeah, he knows knows who Mad Dog is. He knows who his brother is. He knows they've met before. He knows the entire story. The trap is set. Daniel has done his part. I love this page. I love the hobgoblin is going down. I personally guarantee it like his brother did. And uh, the only thing about this segment that really keeps me because I hate to say it. I think number four does fall apart shortly after that sequence. Mm -hmm. It gets a little unclear what's happening exactly. But Peter has literally never looked daddier. I did have that same note. Oh, man. He looks like he looks like a man today. 
They sized him just right. Yes. And um, with a little bit of tummy and the shoulder pop. Oh, he looks tremendous. That like looks like it could be Spider-Man now. It's funny that we both caught this moment because it gives also just a sense of scale for everything. It's a really weird thing, but just seeing what size Spider-Man is versus what size Spider-Girl is, it kind of just clicks everything into place. Maybe this is something that they ought to have thought about a little bit more throughout the book is just Spider-Man, I think, is considered kind of like a lithe, wiry character, like somebody who's not going to be as brute force as a lot of other people you see. But by comparison, Mayday is like nothing but slickness, wiriness, like moving through, agilely attacking rather than using brute force compared to her father. And I think just seeing the size difference between the two of them, you get a whole idea of how her style of spider personing would be different. And when you add in how much bigger she is than Felicity, if you put Felicity next to Peter, that's definitely a studio I've watched. (laughs) You know, like I said, the issue kind of falls apart, but genuinely, I think Mad Dog is one of the best things they've come up with in a really, really long time. He challenges the status quo of this universe in a really compelling way. He is the brash version of what makes Black Tarantula so cool. Black Tarantula will never tell you that he knows he's the biggest man in the world. If you say, oh man, you're looking huge, he would be like, oh, look at you, dude. You look, oh, you look gigantic. If you tell Mad Dog he looks huge, he starts flexing, pulls up his shirt, tells you how he got this vein from doing this thing six times a day. Like, Mad Dog is the uncoolest version of Black Tarantula possible. And that's why he works. And, you know, you add in a film crew. They managed to do that well, which feels like something I that tracks for me with, you know, a, a 50s white man would know how to insert a reality TV crew into a superhero book in a way that feels authentic. I tend to agree. I really do, especially because this reads like a standard issue of any era of Marvel, right? Like they've always done kind of like throwing a film crew into a story, somebody being followed, somebody being followed for the news, somebody filming themselves. That kind of thing has always been a huge element of Marvel storytelling going back to the 1970s. So veteran writers like Tom DeFalco made their bread and butter on meta fiction that challenged the format of the Marvel, you know, idea and the Marvel identity. So yeah, it really tracks to me that he would know how to do a story just like this. Well, speaking of things that we've seen before from this crew, I just need to be clear that Amazing Spider-Man 5, once again, why is it Spider-Girl and giant crotches in front of American flags makes me feel weird about being an American? Uh, An important question we all need to ask ourselves. Like, when I look at this, I'm like, maybe we should have gone with the British. Like, Mad Dog is pretty cheesed with me. Uh, Is he a chili dog? Is that what's happening? I don't care for this. And if this is where the priorities are, we need to adjust them. This is... Also, the issue that says part four on the cover when it's definitely part five. Oh, yeah. So it's a really fascinating thing that Mad Dog thinks he's got Spider-Girl like that. Like, he thinks that he's so in control of this situation. And I think that that's one of the things that makes this character charming. He is stupid. And he's about to be outsmarted by a teenage girl. And we love that teenage girl. So we root for it. He's stupid, but he is kind of a protagonist. He's helpful at the end of the last issue he assists May in fighting off a bunch of guys and he doesn't need to be saved he doesn't get in the way we don't waste too long on like oh I actually want credit for this or you know I'm the actual hero here you're not we just kind of end it when we cut back to him he is having this other conversation where he's like yeah I'm totally the guy and then the script is slipped on him it's all the beats are hit for it to be silly and charming and not antagonistic
opportunistic in a way where we go, uh, is this guy going to keep showing up and doing the same beat over and over again that doesn't really feel like a challenge to May, but is just kind of eating up time in what the actual challenge is? By putting him more in a silly, funny ally role, we get kind of the best of both worlds where we can laugh at the funny moments, but nothing starts to feel stale if we get too much of it. One of the things that we find ourselves feeling kind of stale on is a lot of the other supporting characters. So having one that stays exciting and fresh is a really great way to make me look forward to the Spider-Girl stuff so much. Because, man, I really do have a problem with this. I put a pole in the field Uh. kind of thing. And it's weird. It just feels like, you know... I'm sorry, but you're not Joey Lucas, you idiot. And like, that's just what it is. This whole nothing is as important in this entire world. Like, do they think that this is like state assembly with a decade more experience? I'm seeing things like somebody else is dressing as Spider-Girl and I'm comparing it to Courtney is maybe Spider-Girl. And I see how it's not the same story, but I see how the hallmarks it touches on are attractively similar to create a parallel. And that parallel tells me that this universe has a vibe, not that this universe is repetitive. Because I do feel we're in a better place than we were eight years ago with this high school stuff. But because we're eight years further into the real world. You know what I mean? Like we're eight years more advanced. We're eight years further into social media. We're eight years further into the rise of smartphones and constant information that we're going to spill white out on her like it's the pool scene and not another teen movie just doesn't land. Yeah, this book, when it started, was kind of outdating itself by doing a lot of referencing of styles that were about four years older than when the book itself was launched. And over time, it sort of pulled itself to be a little more on track with current times. But that means that essentially we slowly ebbed through like three or four high school generations. And, you know, within the four year span of when a kid is a freshman to when a kid is a senior, trends change enormously. So if you're starting four years ago only to pull yourself up to current and then go another eight years, that's 12 years worth of styles and trends that you are cycling through this same environment, asking us to sort of buy into the idea that it's always been the same thing. And it just feels like the thing that would have made more sense was to change the environment because the world had changed so much and there was never going to be any way to pull this all together in an authentic way. Yeah. And it's what makes so many of the sequences involving the high school situation so, so so cringy and it's why even though all of the genuine excitement with Mona and Mad Dog and the disc and all right I'm gonna be honest okay yes I maybe love Mad Dog more than ever because he uses Stiltman's hydraulic stilts but that's just because Stiltman is one of the best Daredevil villains of all time and he is one of the most sympathetic characters ever so I I don't know I love the action in this issue it makes up for the weird confusion about last issue the 
is some of the best action they've ever done, but it's ruined by the weird Simone versus Mayday stuff. And that is saved in part by a moment where May does something that she should have been doing a lot more this whole time, which is just fucking off. And in this case, just, just saying fucking off. She just says, I, I quit. Davida is actually the candidate now. Great moment. Took a lot of stuff that I did not care for to get there. I would say it was not worth the setup, but this is something that I love to see in and of itself. And I would have loved to have seen again, you know, maybe around issue 14 of the original is May coming back from a Spider Girl thing and having this moment of realization that no, in fact, you cannot have it all. No, this thing does not, in fact, matter. I'm out. Yeah. And it's such a big moment that everybody even feels like it's a good idea, except for probably the Parkers and I guess Davida. But, you know, nobody thinks it's a better moment than Gene. God damn it, Gene. Goddamn, 100% completely confirmed all of our suspicions. I also want to go out of my way to say they draw this, I'm going to hope, 18-year-old senior with some ass on every panel. They give him like spider lycra ass everywhere. I guess what this is is Tom DeFalco said, I sense a great disturbance in the force. I uh, I think someone's going to die on free comic book day. So let's tell a cautionary tale to stop free comic book day from ever happening. And uh, it didn't work. It didn't work. And now we have free comic. Oh, right. Nothing bad has ever happened at a comic event. What the fuck? This is one of those things that it does not matter what harmless normal person thing it is. If you can put Spider Girl at it, someone's going to die. It's almost like you would think that maybe the thing we should warn people from doing is having Spider-Girl themed celebrations. You know they would just do even more of them. They'd open up even more spider shops. Oh my god, there would be a chain of Scarlet Spider hideaways. It's like Claire's. Okay, when I was in ninth grade, my English teacher was like, you guys need to learn the term in media res. It means stories that start in the middle. And then you start to see them everywhere. You know, it's one of those things like for the first time you hear a word, all of a sudden you notice it everywhere and then you hear it in shows that you had to have heard it because you've seen that show before how did you never notice that word oh it turns out your brain does context stuff and fills in the blanks and stuff and you know works around it there's something about when you begin to see a specific method of storytelling and how a writer uses it tom defalco doesn't use the end media res beginning very often but when he does it's for exactly these beats every time we have that slow boil introduction of the at home moment we have the transition into the darkness that's coming. We have a slow rolling through the day and the clues coming together. It's a very classic format, so I'm certainly not knocking him. It is very structured in a very standard way where we feel as though we, the audience, can interact with the ideas on page. For instance, we know that the cover has the spider girl in Hobgoblin's arms partially obscured in shadow. We know Heather is going to be in a spider girl costume. Could this be Heather? Is it Mayday? As we read, we begin to piece together the maybes. Wouldn't you know, Felicity shows up. I'm not saying I could necessarily see Felicity putting on a Spider-Girl costume, but I could see Felicity being there and maybe some sort of costume kerfluffle, right? And that's such a Tom DeFalco gotcha that has taken like 206 issues to fucking recognize, but this is a very classic Spider-Girl beat sheet. Yep, and this really is the what I was talking about when I said like we should have seen more weaving together of high school stuff and spider girl stuff around like issue 14 
scene. This is a pretty tight weave. This has everything you need to combine her two lives, to give us a story that is distinctly Spider-Girl, that has beats that are recognizable, not in a way that comes off as played out, but just this is a a classic Spider-Girl tale. And the actual issue itself, and no offense to this issue, I don't think is really necessary. I maybe think that issues five and six could have, maybe four and five and five and six could have been structured together in such a way that it was just two issues between the three of them. But essentially, Felicity and Mayday work to crack the disc that she received in the last issue. And when they can't and Black Tarantula becomes aware that it's in Mayday's possession, he immediately tells Chesbro to back off, which is, you know, one of those things that we said really is a great definer for Black Tarantula. I would say the big shock for me here was I really thought Heather was going to get Gwen stacy Yeah, I kind of did too. Kind of disappointed that she didn't. No, I kind of wish Jimmy got Gwen Stacy. Yeah, that'd be weird. But I just was not sure what was happening here. This was, man, who might die? I love the split panel image because one of the things that a lot of artists are forced into with the split face panel where the two people are, you know, facing off visually is they force the faces to be the same exact symmetry, even though that makes no sense. In this instance, Spider-Girl has such a bigger eye than the Goblin has, but the Goblin has such a bigger face. There's something about the playing against the dimension that really sets how disproportionate in size they are to one another. It's, uh, you know, also the home of the Disney reference that then is compounded by the Islands of Adventure and Disney reference in the same month's Avengers Next, but that's neither here nor there. And you get a little helping hand from Black Tarantula at the end of the day. Yeah, I love that Black Tarantula is like, just help her, don't make it a big deal, just let it be her thing. Sure, you know, he's not trying to be like, and I've saved you, right. thank me with your virtue. And he does it at a point where it's just like, here's a gift, not I'm stepping in because you fucked up so bad. Maybe had the situation under control. He was just, you know, making a little easier. The only thing that I think May might have fucked up is that she didn't have this phenomenal conversation with her parents sooner. It is kind of a coming out. Not quite, it's really not quite, but it is, this is who I am, this is what it's gonna be. If it's going to be different while I live in your house, fine. I will do everything I can to honor and respect your wishes as my parents who own the home I live in. But to be clear with you, the day I leave, I will be my own woman and there is nothing you can do to ask me to be different. I'm going to go get some fresh air because this was hard on me. But thank you for being part of my journey and I love you. This was like the best Mayday moment I could have asked for at the end of an arc. Absolutely agree. It's a bummer that it's two pages. It's just not quite long enough, but holy shit, it doesn't end with, it's a Spider-Girl world and I'll figure out how to live in it. The end, for now, it ends with, I'm fucking Spider-Girl. What's up? And like, yes, thank you. Dude, DeFalco, dude, you got it. You finally gave me like that. This is how you end an arc. It just, it had that emotional resonance. If as a gay man, I'm saying you paralleled coming out well, you did something right. Yep, completely agree. You know, all said and done, (sighs) I wish I liked this arc more. I really liked things about it. The truth is I have to give Spider-Girl Zero, like on a scale of these issues that have done those big catch-ups, like the annual or Spider-Girl 100, now this one, I would say for the fact that it was so selective and so hyper-focused, I'm pretty comfortable giving Amazing Spider-Girl number zero a C and saying it's in some ways the weakest of the catch-ups. Yep, I think that's absolutely 
you're right. I wish I could give it better, but I have to give Amazing Spider-Girl 1 through 6 a B-. minus. I would love to give it a B or a B+, plus, but the mistakes that the creative team are still making disappoint me terribly, and for the increased action with Felicity and the increased appearances of guys like Mad Dog, who totally do it for me, I'm just disappointed that the book hasn't learned lessons the same way May Day has. Yeah, the good parts are are great and they're really fun. Unfortunately, they're parts, they're elements. There's no single issue here that's really fantastic. Unfortunately, this whole arc is not fantastic. This team has done some tireless work on this character. They've really developed a lot of stuff. And we are in some ways grading on the curve of like, you've put the work in, now make sure the quality meets the work that you've done and a lot of times that's just not what happens what happens is just more work yeah more work and that's one of the reasons that I think it's so terrific that Spider-Girl remains a focus not of her own title not just of her own title but she also winds up in the pages of Avengers Next we really have a chance to see the character thrive even if the title isn't thriving because the things we're saying are the problem are functional elements of the way the book is assembled Not so much May Day. I think that's true. So it's not like I'm coming for this volume of Avengers Next right off the bat, but something I have decided is I think I like A-Next, Avengers Next, whatever we want to call them, more when they don't have their own title. I agree with that. I think I love the idea, and I this is another place where another writer and another creative team would have really served to enhance the overall MC2 universe that we were getting. It, they are great supporting characters for May Day when they have to shine on their own it is a tough sell a lot of the time and I feel as though this time it might not even be the writing for me right off the bat this cover is tough it is a weird interpretation of Saberclaw where he looks a little like he's got these super giant thick Howie long arms but then he's got this gaunt Terry Hatcher face and it's all the wrong kinds of a Radio Shack commercial I feel like there's some really weird elements to the fit and design of J2's helmet in a way that makes him look a little not quite how I expected. And then it's this lineup in general of Spider-Girl who's in her costume, even though she's like not in her costume in her book at this point. It's American Dream looking kind of- Did she get her membership back? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, we find out that Stinger's quit for political reasons and that, you know, American Dream is running this whole show. But I, I just don't know. It's also like if you're talking about the Avengers, Mayday, if she even has her membership, is a reserve member. And Blue Streak is great, but is she an iconic Avenger from this era? I don't really think so. I mean, like even Mainframe, who I don't really care about one way or the other, but just feels like somebody who you would expect to see on the cover of a new Avengers title in the MCU. Because at the same time, one of the things that I find myself really wondering about is where was the direction meant to go? It's not that I think perhaps this book doesn't work in concept, but this doesn't feel like it establishes a brave new era for Avengers Next. It feels like every now and then they say, well, let's just take a step back and look at Avengers Next instead of what can we do to make them next? It also is ostensibly there to resolve the story of Kevin getting his 
powers back after they were lost in Last Planet Standing. A perfectly acceptable concept for a story, but also you literally could just say once Galactus left and they started rebuilding, his powers came back. Like it could have just been one line and then this story could have been any. So this much of a production to get us to a point where Thunderstrike is going to come back, but then the book ends and there's no more, just feels like an odd combination of choices for the direction. There's also some really weird decisions about the characters here, but one thing I want to say before anything else is the crispness on Ron Lim and Scott Koblish's work here with some startlingly sharp colors by Avalon Studios' Rob Rowe. This is the most modern and mature this title has ever looked, like anything in the MC2 maybe. I think that is really true, and I mentioned when we started that Ron Lim's presence in this series of volumes was really appreciated. It has been a ton of Ron Friends and Pat Olive for the past few episodes that we've been covering many, many volumes of these stories, and they are excellent artists, but it is nice to see another style, and also one that has really matured since its heyday in the MC2. Ron Lim, I really associate with like the Wild Thing book, which I love, but was a little bit cartoony, not in a pejorative way. It's just the style that they chose. This really feels like an evolution of style and a maturity for the characters as well. I think that also has to do with the fact that we have entered the age of flatter and shader for coloring. We're no longer in the great era of like, ah, it's just colors, put them on the page. Now it's a little bit more like they're fucking colors, treat them with respect. And it's not that the artists of yore were ever anything less than true to their passion. They didn't have the tools. They didn't have the technique. They didn't have the time. They didn't have the funding. So as these things became more manageable and more accessible, you know, and just like in a silly way, I remember when we were in school growing up, people who had art tablets, it was like, ooh. And now it's like when I got a new laptop, I got myself a new digital tablet because I needed something to be able to color and pencil with. So like, even though I'm not an artist, I knew I needed one. And, you know, teachers use them for whiteboard applications. So like as technology has evolved, colors have evolved as well. And the depth of shading on page three of the digital of Avengers Next number one is in some ways more than the combined shading in whole issues of classic Avengers. Yeah. And you see it throughout the book too. My example was Kevin's face on digital page four. Absolutely. No question. And speaking of that giant gorgeous face, he's too big. I'm almost confused how we can see him standing next to his superhero form. And I'm not kidding. I think based on the width of his shoulders and the depth of his chest, he might actually get smaller as Thunderstrike and just have more hair. But he's so big as Kevin now. This is where we are starting to enter an age of you really lose sight of the transformational aspect when the character is no longer meant to be a child. You know, Kevin as a coming of age young man. That was one of the reasons we really rooted for him. I'm not saying that I don't root for him here, but it's sort of exactly as you said at the beginning of the episode, the fact that there had to be some sort of giant shenanigan to get him back his powers and he's so big outside of his powers and he's so able and clever and he just this side of has the power of force of will and it's like, I just maybe don't love what they did to Kevin. I agree and it speaks to a lot of different things that are going on with the MC2. The thing I loved about Kevin was Kevin was a college student, but he felt like an 18-year-old that we would still call 
call a kid, even though technically he is an adult. It felt like he was still figuring everything out. He's kind of scrawny. He's in art school. And when I think about that, the other thing I think about is how it would still be really plausible for May to get a little bit older and do different stuff besides high school stuff, but still seem like a kid. Still seem like she doesn't have it all together. 18-year-old does not mean instantly your maturity is completely there. You are an adult in every way. It means legally you can buy cigarettes kind of adult. And so when we saw Kevin at first, he was 18 and still a kid. And when you would put him next to Zayn Yama, they seemed like they were peers. That's why like seeing them both transform into their superhero personas was kind of great. And seeing them go back, they could kind of be friends in both ways. It all really worked. And now, especially with Kevin, feels like Kevin really got the drift that May needed. Kevin just kind of got aged up into, you know, a sexy 21 plus year old who's been at the gym for the last four years of college and knows what he's doing. We never identified with him as that character and it's not really to his benefit to be that person. I agree. There really is no value to that because that takes away the sort of special context of who he was. You know, he was one of those can do it no matter what guys. And now it's just sort of like, yeah, he could fucking take on Cap. Like he could fucking fight Cap. Like it's not me trying to be like, oh, body image is everything. But when the character's whole visual perspective is size transformation because that's an intrinsic part of the developmental perspective of why this character's narrative matters. It matters. That's, you know, when you draw Wolverine with six foot long claws, okay, it's silly, it's stylized, but you're Humberto Ramos and no one's going to tell you no. When you draw him the same height as Captain America, you done goofed. And I think making a character who was meant to be the underdog at all times, now pretty clearly like just like big man on his own it's a little disappointing for me also the last big context we had with him was mainframe benching him because he cannot be an avenger as kevin kevin doesn't have any powers kevin is small kevin doesn't really have a lot of training kevin just relies on the transformation and this whole story it definitely you know acknowledges the fact that there's a difference between kevin and thunderstrike but it's as you said like he comes to challenges and is like well i'm technically an avenger so i should be able to do this regardless of what abilities I have. And it just doesn't really feel like the character that we knew. I agree. It also was a little strange that the plot here is once again, somebody is trying to break in to the Avengers compound. The only reason that's kind of frustrating is because we so recently did that in like literally the last volume of A Next. It really does make it seem like these guys can't figure out how to lock a fucking door, let alone save the world. And I know, you know, somebody teleports in and as great as I find Warp and as hot as I find his design and I'm really glad that he winds up, you know, becoming a good guy by the end. Did we really need another wrong side of the tracks young black man who starts with a life of crime because it's whatever he can do to get a leg up who has to be convinced to be a good guy by a white savior? We did not. No, we didn't. So, you know, I'm I'm happy with Warp as a character, but oh my God, I didn't realize Chris was in this book. Look, it's Chris. It's, uh, it's Chris Joker. It's Joker. Chris Joker. And uh, some giant purple fabulous Joe fix it I was so worried that was going to be the ape dude from um early Julius the gorilla or whatever from early yeah, J2 big Julie. Big Julie. I was very very worried about that I was just really glad that it wasn't ultimately Loki and Hulk back with Hulk as Joe fix it oh I was, interesting I was really afraid that this was like female Loki once I realized that it was a woman once they said milady which you know identify however you want totally here for it they didn't do a very good job giving this character 
you're in at all feminine visual. So I had trouble being sure if it was an evil male or female puppet. But once they made it pretty clear, Milady, you know, I knew that it had to be some female as guardian type character. So I'm thinking Enchantress. I'm thinking, you know, a female iteration of Loki, which would have been around at the time. My initial thought was it was like some kind of vulture, like the vulture aged somewhat, or I don't know. It's a very weird character design. The fact that she's in like a blazer, like a pantsuit. It's a great character design. It's just a bunch of really specific off kilter choices that this team doesn't usually make. So it was just kind of staring at it the whole time trying to figure out exactly what I'm getting into. One of the things that I was pretty surprised to get into is a repeatedly inconsistent looking saber claw. That's number one. He just doesn't look the same any three panels in a row. The facial features move like on page nine. He has a a pretty human looking face, but then by page 10, he looks much more animalistic and almost like gargoyle gnarled. You know, it's really tough because this is a character I don't like in the first place. It's a character I don't identify with. It's a character that I would rather see any other member of his motherfucking family. And I'm saddled with him. And beyond that, now he's gay with Freebooter? I mean, we got that at the end of Last Planet Standing. And it was such an odd choice because like it goes from one panel where he's like, oh, I guess I do have to help the heroes because I don't want to die. And then suddenly he and Freebooter are in a buddy comedy where they're constantly holding each other. Yeah. And the fact that he's like, I kind of become buds. Like it is so queer coded. Did somebody say imply every weird group of males is gay together? And they were like, okay, that's that's diversity. We're here for it. Like, I'm grateful because it does feel like we are getting closer in the timeline to where we should have been all along with openly queer characters. You know, the implicit is at least appreciated instead of pretending it's not there at all. But it's certainly odd that it's so much all at once out of nowhere and that it's both Mad Dog and Saberclaw with a sort of fruity purple dude. <laughs> it's interesting. So, all right, let's just say it. Was Were zombies just that hot? Did I just like, I because I don't think I get it. I, I don't think I zombie. is. I don't zombies, zombie. I don't zombie. But yeah, Marvel Zombies is like enormous. They've printed so many different stories. The fact that there's a whole what if with Marvel Zombies. I truly do not get it. Everything is just trying to make sure The Walking Dead doesn't take too big a share of the zombie market that we're all really concerned about. If you are somebody who loves zombies and is into this, I love that you eat so readily all the time wherever you go. It's not for me. No, doesn't really do it for me. I also didn't get why they had Zane be like, what? I want to play video games. Oh, what was I thinking? I'm such a bonehead. Time to be a superhero. Like, what a waste of my four panels. And then the May Day stuff. Maybe the Zane thing was supposed to give us some blue streak J2 slash Zane time because it was a very minor, very subtle plot line throughout A Next and J2 that Blue Streak likes J2 and likes him as Zane. She likes Zane. And he is kind of oblivious to it. When I saw Blue Streak on the cover, I got to thinking like, oh, maybe she's getting a much bigger part in this because there's been some change in the lineup and we will revisit that story and come to kind of some understanding about it or get some development. It remains this really minor thing that is just referenced in like crabby responses from Blue Streak or just like she runs off panel because J2 says the wrong thing. It never develops. It's never addressed in any way that gives a reader that might even notice this is happening, which is almost a long shot in and of itself. Any sort of closure or progression 
progression of this story. So anytime they set these two up and have them have a conversation, it does end up being feeling a little bit like a waste of panel space because there is no point to this story. And so much of this issue just winds up being like pointless page waste. I don't think that the battle is particularly poorly told, but it doesn't really add anything to the characters. I'm glad to see Spider-Girl hop in. I don't love that they tried to make this red look a look that was a look that they tried to make work, but I am much angrier about the Universal's Islands of Adventure. My mistake, I should have realized you'd be a Disney fan reference if for no other reason, LOL, three years later, you look kind of funny, don't you? (laughs) Just saying. By this point, Universal's Islands of Adventure were old and, you know, Disney was closer to buying Marvel than Universal Islands of Adventure was to open it. So this is a pretty dated reference, kind of needless, you know, just really doesn't do anything, makes the book seem a little out of touch, if for no other reason. Why the fuck are they talking about Universal's Islands of Adventure? It just, it's one of those things that we have always said was one of the weakest elements of the MC2 was this inability to let go of the, you know, for lack of a better term, pop culture humorification of everything. You know, at some point we just decided that really good stand-up jokes make for a comedy and that's fine, but it doesn't always work in comic books quite the same way when they're supposed to be super heroics involved. You really have to be a specific type of person to know how to reference pop culture that will be timeless such that, you know, you can make any pop culture reference to previous times. You make a joke about Billy Joel. It will sustain. Everybody knows Billy Joel. You make a joke about the Beatles. Everybody's going to get it. If you make a joke in 1998 about Samantha Mumba, when you get a 2018 reader, they're not necessarily going to think that's funny. So you really have to have your references in place and know pop culture really well. And I don't blame Tom DeFalco for not being that person, but I also think it is a bit hubristic to look on the front page of USA Today, see whatever is kind of popular and happening, and throw those references in and think, nailed. I completely agree, especially because one of the things that's so ridiculous is the ever-changing nature of meme culture, right? I want to make a weird commentary about the shifting nature of why the MC2 maybe fell out of vogue so rapidly. I was lucky enough to be raised in comic fandom, like going to comic cons in the 90s as a little kid with my dad was really cool. And I have really great memories of that. But most of my best comic book con memories that, you know, outside of like cool memories with my dad, you know, like that are special to me. Most of my most special con memories are the ones that have all happened since Comic Con became Carnival. And it is so much more gratifying and rewarding to be part of fandom now, which is a true celebration of welcome inclusivity and diversity instead of people who felt marginalized finding pockets in a group that was already meant to be respectful of the marginalized. And I bring this up because before Iron Man changed everything, you know, there was one set of, oh shit, that's that funny Easter egg. And in a post-Iron Man world, we have a very different set of Easter eggs. And we were rapidly approaching it with things like the X-Men movies and the Spider-Man movies. And you're really starting to see that blurred line. And the references are really beginning to do the book in injustice because they started cringing references. But now the act of making the reference is kind of cringy. And that's definitely hurting the ebb and flow of the script. Yep. And again, other writers, just new blood in here could have sustained some. So I also think that one of the things that Tom DeFalco 
Falco provides that can't be achieved easily otherwise is having lived it. You know, talking about growing up in it. Tom DeFalco so readily thinks of people like Ulick, who, you know, if you've read Jason Aaron's Avengers, Ulick is the fucking front of your brain. I probably wouldn't have put him here. And I would have done like a Hulk Joe Fixit thing. And we would have sat here saying, ugh, the same 10 references every time. No, this was a pretty different reference. DeFalco got you, kind of got me here. Oh, for sure. And I was convinced Thena was going to suck. On the cover of issue two, she looks cool. J2 is falling backward with giant fucked up eyes. And, you know, the number of women on this team that aren't injured compared to the two men both being felled is really interesting. I like the fact that the four women are in positions of authority. Spider-Girl, American Dream, and Blue Streak, none of the three of them seem disarmed, whereas, you know, J2 and Saberclaw are both laid low. So at least the cover really functions on that regard. But, you know, coming into this, I was like, who the fuck is Thena? I do not trust her. I think she's going to be evil. Also, just weird to choose that name. I guess the Eternals are in front of everybody's mind, but I just immediately confused. I don't blame you. And speaking of confusing, when we opened this book and we immediately saw Nova and Earth Century, were you confused because isn't it so many fucking people? Don't we keep hearing from A next? Damn, we're running out of people. Damn, we're low on people. Damn, we don't have any people. And now it's just like everyone, everyone everywhere. There's everyone everywhere at all the time, all of the people. And what bums me out is I think there's a story there where everybody will show up to a battle, but nobody wants to be a day-to-day Avenger, do the admin work, be there for the small things that the Avengers have to do. And that's the thing that's really frustrating them. This team, the core team, show up and do the job and everybody else only shows up when they want to. That could have been a really cool story for five issues, but we don't get anything like that. There's not really any depth or subtlety or questions about team. It just really is this kind of nonsense complaint that there's nobody to be an Avenger and yet whenever something comes up, all the Avengers show. That is a really incredible perspective that I think is at the heart of a lot of the best felled moments of the Avengers core. There, That's, you know, the strikes unawares thing. That's, yeah, I really love that perspective. And for this one, they really brought in the big guns. They brought back Stinger, of course, because who could live without her? And then mm-hmm. we get the strangest. I, um, you know, the fact that they put the evil crone version of the daughter of Loki, Celine, another one where you're just like, really? That they put her in a later Hillary pantsuit and they put Katie Power in what can only be described as a Chelsea skort. I'm just like, what is happening? What is happening? Also, do you power at all? I mean, I don't really power. Uh, Wheezy Simonson, but I don't really power. I don't really power. I, you know, powered through Inferno as every good comic reader and X-Men fan should. A little bit of what was going on around Runaways because she was dating one of the Runaways at one point and that's really it. I'm always rooting for them. I'm always waiting for the time where they're gonna age them up and they're gonna hit their second wind and second stride. This was an interesting alternative preview for one of them of that life. Now I can't stop imagining a supreme power reimagining of Power Pack. Yeah. So, oh, they'd be so fucking bad and so good at the same time. So there's too many people in this fucking book. I don't need this continued Nova stuff and Earth Century stuff if you're trying to have me care about Ulick and War. 
Thorpe and Kevin and Celine, who at this point, I only know one is Ulick and one is Old Crone Monster. And Warp clearly is going to flip sides. The idea that Warp at this point in the narrative wouldn't flip sides. It's like you've never read a comic. Like it's if he didn't, we would be like, wow, okay, he sucks. And not in a man that really surprised me way. Like in a why did I read this kind of way? Yeah, because the it's it's laying the building blocks for it. And, you know, it doesn't feel like a DeFalco switcheroo moment. It just feels like, you know, if you know stories and you know there has to be some kind of in, sometimes it kills the magic for you. Sometimes you are not surprised and that's fine. You have to have plausible ins for things to happen. And Warp just, he feels like a plausible in. You can see his heart's not really in it. He's just there for the job. And that is generally a reliable place to crack a villain's plan. It, it's not a problem that it ends up being really straightforwardly that that happens it i think more would be a problem if that didn't happen because then what was the point of this character and the time spent to show the crack to make it plausible when they used it to get it and i wonder if exactly what you just said was even what they thought they could use as the gimmick on Sabreclaw, who sucks just dramatically sucks like he's not an interesting character he's a bad stand-in for wild thing i don't even think of him as a stand-in for wolverine because wolverine would think these behavior patterns are disgusting and i can't figure out who his mama is but you know i refuse to let it be electra if this is this world's docking we're all fucked uh i want to say this is this world's raise this okay. is the son of mystique okay i'll take it i'll absolutely take it because you know so little happens this issue really what we get is the first appearance of thena who winds up not being anything more than a thor stand-in i would have been just as happy if it was a teenage thor come back through the rebirth of asgard in some regard but i don't know she doesn't add much it's a fake mjolnir it breaks on j2's head what am i supposed to take from that yeah i what i would have preferred is like an incarnate thunderstrike that needs to merge with kevin and like get back to a baseline but for now you've got a thor there obviously we've had a little too much king thor we can't have him back but it doesn't feel like Thena is being introduced to complete the avengers or it's odd because like Julie Power, Katie Power is there too. So we're introducing all these new characters or references to old characters or people that you're like, this is going to stack the Avengers or put new, really interesting, powerful people on the Avengers. But it's like we only get 40% of what we need from any one of them to really feel like this is a big next step for, for the team. And so it's just a, a repeated problem for the MC2, which is throwing new characters in or throwing old characters for the first time into the MC2 for no other purpose than just to confirm that they do in fact exist here too or there is an interesting spin on the version that you know and love. Well, that is exactly what we effing get when out of nowhere, it's revealed that the plan has been all along for the daughter of Loki, who we still just think is some old witch at this point, to bring back Ultron. And not just any Ultron, my friend. No, no, no. It is the worst named Ultron ever. It is Ultron Extreme, who sounds to me like an upgrade on my cable subscription, not like a villain. Is this 1994? Well, I don't, how do, how is it this late after the extreme era for Marvel Comics? And we're going with Ultron Extreme. And I guess that it's supposed to be a reference to a specific iteration of Ultron that we've probably encountered. You know, I really do enjoy seeing Cap with the fucking like fish scale chain armor and uh, a super cool old school looking 
Iron Man, you know, you don't see Iron Man's like that outside of classic toys anymore. And always a good time to see Thor with fucking lats like nobody's business. But I don't think this story had room for Ultron. Like, he really doesn't add anything. It just does not take the story anywhere engaging. And it's also, it's like not really Ultron. It's just kind of like a, a puppet for Celine, the daughter of Loki, which I always feel like you have to say the whole thing so nobody mistakes it for the awesome Celine Ankoa. Um, again, it's just like another character that you know from 616, but now they're in 982. Can you believe it? But then every one of those, it's like you can never do them justice by giving their whole story. There's just not enough time. So you have to hand wave their presence or give them less than they deserve. And it just feels like an exercise. It's, it's like flashcards. Like, do you know who this person is? Okay, next one. You know who this person is? Okay. And by keeping them in these sort of holding patterns of story, yeah, it's a pretty easy way to flashcard them. The fact that poor Blue Streak is essentially this universe is Quicksilver. She is super fast. She's super cool. She's a member of the Avengers. She's stylized in an engaging way. She's got the lightning bolt motif, which is always really cool in an action shot. So she's got a lot visually going for her and, you know, she fits a, a sort of perspective. But the fact that she is constantly like, I don't know, she's too good to be this simped to J2. Fuck me, J2. Like, <laughs> What Why? the fuck? This our only plot point, and you know the tradition of speedsters being these people that are above everybody else because they're able to move through life so much faster, and that gives them such a different perspective. She, she doesn't even need that. We were getting like the reason this stuff with J two came up was because we were seeing this part of her personality that is just like she just likes good people. She sees the good in people. She's a team player. This is a character with a lot of potential and a lot of personality that they manage to make present through very little on-page time or like deep dives into background or anything. But she feels, without very much presence in previous stories, very familiar and fleshed out. She just has never been given the spotlight. And this book gave a big switcheroo on making us think that it, it would be now. And instead, she has a team power function and this J2 ridiculousness. And that's all she gets. And it just does not seem fair. But I do like that she's got the you know gay dude bicep band but she's got it for lightning bolts <laughs> i know a lot of like badass chicks that love hockey who would totally get that for the bolts so uh, i'm probably gonna put that up on pinterest or something speaking of notable looks spider girl she's in her webs i'm so glad uh you know what isn't a mistake yeah let's send the daughter of thor in with a fake hammer to fight ultron <sighs> sure what's the point what's the point it seems silly i you know and i get that it's you know a big heavy titanium hammer great but exactly like you said a few moments ago the fact that ultimately it's that Celine, the daughter of Loki is pretending to be every third person and ultimately gets on the plane and I don't know there's that panel transition from Kevin to old crone lady that to me is definitely some like grinder profile photo transitions I've seen happen so I ultimately feel like the buying 
time doesn't do anything and it just leaves everything feeling kind of hollow yeah this is a real holding issue it doesn't doesn't really get us anywhere and we've just we've got all of these characters now and kind of nowhere to go with well you know where we should go with them we should go wherever there is a really well labeled remote that has all of their faces on it there's a little spider face there's a little cap star there's a really well labeled j2 there's a lightning bolt there's a munchlax wait okay well it's probably not supposed to be munchlax but this is the silliest visual i have maybe seen from the mc2 in a really long time spider girl is visually too close in size to j2 they are all in these sort of ridiculous pod things that look like they might be go-go dancing a little bit uh there's some real the jetsons to the look of the technology there's even something funny about the titling is sat on the cover of the dress and this remote really is the thing that makes it look you know the most his boy elroy of all of it it does look like a child's toy where you press the button to make the sound happen and you just giggle about it and the bottom has these giant buttons that make it look like it might be a tape deck <laughs> yep it is just one of those places where even though we said ron Lim, this is beautiful artwork and we said tom defalco these are really well-developed characters we're still finding ourselves in positions where the team hasn't been given the support to develop the kind of universe that you know i guess i guess though that that's getting a little thin for me because indie books do it all the time and indie backup features do it in eight pages and i just feel like at this point avengers next really should have done something because once again we are in another holding pattern issue this could have been a giant fucking annual and we could have just been at the zombies now yep i keep returning to the point but i think creatively if you work on something non-stop like this and you don't take a step back let somebody else do the work for a while to the point where you forget stuff and you have to come back and really take a second to reset and reread through a bunch of your notes and go through and remember all of the little details that you created with a fresh perspective that makes you re-examine some of those details you are just kind of going on autopilot and pulling up whatever the next stop on the train is rather than looking at you know the journey as a whole and I think that's what this end section of the MC2 is really suffering from like these guys have just been on this for so long I think they could have done better if they'd been able to step away if they were given a month off because it really becomes so easy to lose track of what you're talking about that was one of the things I had to start doing I had to start listening back to our show because I couldn't keep editing it if I wasn't hearing it all together week after week and noticing oh you know what we say that a lot I should cut it half the time you know there's stuff you say a lot Tom DeFalco you might have wanted to consider cutting it half the time or maybe this is the product you wanted because that is also the other reality that we could be discussing here we could be looking at a book that is exactly what Tom DeFalco wanted it to be every single time in which case our vision doesn't line up with his but I do believe that the intent behind these stories is worth maybe a little bit more than my unsureness of what they mean by we've stolen their ethereal energies. My confusion at how many times you're going to reveal that this bad guy was actually just the child of this other bad guy. Like, I'm shocked that he's not Ulak, the son of Ulik. And at this point, we're really deep into the Ultimates to the point where now the Ultimates is really starting to show a lot of its problems. But it's hard not to look at the two and see the places where the Ultimate Universe really built on its strengths brick by brick and expanded creatively and took 
took some chances on titles that weren't necessarily on paper what you would think would be successful. And I just, I think we got stories that are better for comic book readers as a whole to continue with out of Ultimates than we did for MC2. But I just see the same, if not more, potential everywhere I look here. And it's been going on longer, so I want it more. Because we see the same mistakes. It's been going on for too long, and we keep seeing the same mistakes. And it's getting distracting. It's getting confusing. And I am excited because something that I've learned through our discussion of Ultimate Comics and the Ultimates is there's a lot for me to learn that I really didn't know about the Ultimate Universe. And I would be interested in taking another look at it. But, you know, even from an outset, I'm like, yeah, the problems are are visible in creating a copy universe, you know, that's meant to simulate. And that's even with a wealth of some of comics' then greatest minds working together to shape it carefully. I'm not saying that MC2 isn't some of comics' greatest minds. I'm saying there's far fewer of them. And it really is, number one, your point about they needed a break. Number two, it's the point about they needed a little bit more time with other people getting in there and helping shape the ideas from an outside perspective. And number three, it's they needed to stop making dumb mistakes, like putting Thunderstrike on the cover of number five. There goes any potentiality he has for becoming, you know, I could have seen him as a new freebooter type, as a new Hawkeye type, somebody who does it without powers. No, well, then why is Thena here? I'm confused about all of it. Why is Thena here? And then, not that you can't have two women introduced, but then it's it's not that she's a woman. Why is Katie Power here? Because that's such a specific reference, and it seems so important that she be there from a knowledge and powers perspective, but then it also seems like it's supposed to be really important that Thena is there from a knowledge and powers perspective. And on top of that, Thena's stuff really relates to Kevin's stuff. We're really trying to resolve the Kevin story that Kevin can't really participate in fully because he doesn't have the Thunderstrike stuff. Pick one. Just give us one. Yeah, I'm at least relieved that Warp flips in four, not five. I don't really understand what sticking J2 in a volcano does, but fine. Weird. The only thing I really want to state negatively about this last issue, I don't really get the energy clones and what exactly they can do. And one more time, on page five, like that running shot of Thunderstrike, I'm sorry, Kevin, really could just be Captain America. Yep. Like this guy is so big and so powerful telling me over and over again that that guy can't hang in because even if he's not super fast like Blue Streak, he'll take a punch better than she will. Even if he can't cling to stuff like Spider Girl, he's still a brilliant tactician with tons of field experience who knows how to handle weaponry. Like there's just so much to Kevin that did not work here and then blowing that he transforms back on the cover. I don't know. Just really was not what I was hoping for from this story. Yeah, I completely agree. I love the idea that somebody who could never have been on the Avengers but for the powers that they randomly receive does the work, does the time, learns the skills, and so the Avengers say, like, of course we're not going to let you go. You know, you'll stay on here in, you know, a consulting capacity and we'll find space for you. And then you give us a story where they find a new thing that lets them participate. You know, he even gets the Grim Reaper's scimitar thing and uses that, which obviously doesn't really work, but like it just goes to show that putting in the time and having the field experience and having been in battles is a pretty rare thing in the superhero world. Like it's not something a lot of people ever get to do. So once you get to do it, even if you lose your powers for whatever reason, you are still a valuable person. And where your journey goes from there, 
player can be an interesting story. It shouldn't always be like, we got to get you back to status quo. And, you know, that's something I think that we see all the time in comics. That's not just an MC2 problem, but because it's so highlighted here that this is the story of Kevin figuring out what to do, the fact that it's just like, get your powers back, dummy, really does feel like we, it would have just been better as an off-screen explanation and give us a different story. Yeah, really, truly. In part because, you know, the transformation moment is so silly. Again, not trying to stress it, but he's not that much bigger as Thunderstrike, so the only real change is his hair in like a really surprising way. And, you know, his face, no, his face doesn't really get bigger. It doesn't anymore. It used to. Uh, It's that it's this E.T. finger touch that makes it feel a little silly. And it's on the heels of the Athena kissing J2 moment, which really bummed me out. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, I don't even know what to say about that because it's not, it's very clearly just supposed to be a sweet little thing. But because it's wrapped up in this stupid J2 likes her and that's up, that upsets Blue Streak and that's never getting resolved or discussed and that's all Blue Streak had. I, I'm not really sure if you're supposed to feel like, oh, J2 has a chance. Like, that's cool. Way to go, bro. Again, it's one of those things where it's like four panels that we could have used for anything else. And then the issue just ends. Done. And then it's just over. Seriously. Like, from the moment Thunderstrike gets his power back, they just sort of toss Loki, in, sorry, Celine in a volcano. And then she's just done. And then we get a cast shot of way too many fucking people. We have Thena, J2, Earth Century, Dog Shaved, Saber Claw, Blue Streak, Nova, Warp, Mainframe, Stinger, American Dream, Thunderstrike, Kate Power, and Spider Girl. And it really does kind of look like Thunderstrike is trying to block Saber Claw's junk. Yep. He burned a hole in his crotch. And for the team photo, they really had to get it right then. So, Normie, stop kinda... exposing yourself to the 16 year old girl. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it really feels like. Like the they were so impressed that they ended this thing on a bang but then when you zoom out it really just is like a tiny little firecracker that grew on the ground it is no cap star <laughs> no it is not do i think it's the worst of the three volumes of avengers next probably not i don't think it was anywhere near like for lack of a better word because i certainly don't mean like ugh, my feelings but like for lack of a better term it certainly wasn't offensive enough it just didn't do anything. Uh, Yeah, exactly. It was inoffensive. It was unremarkable. If this were midway through, like, if this were, like, issue 25 of a series that had gone on, or if this were, like, five issues in in the 20s, that would be totally fine. But because the Avengers are a flagship team in the Marvel Universe, in any Marvel Universe, because we've gotten so little time with them, and because this is kind of a new era reset, I almost would prefer that this took way bigger swings and just tanked and just astounded me with how terrible it was rather than just being like, ah, it's it's fine. There's just a lot of stuff that should be better. Yeah, I'm, you know, walking away giving this one probably a C. Yep. It just doesn't move me in any meaningful way. Nope. And what's interesting is that Avengers Next is oddly close in time and name to Next Avengers. Yeah. So surprising that, you know, you don't see more crossover with the future kids of the Avengers from that movie that also intersects 
connected with the Bendis run, but especially you know, because like this is the universe uh, that is born out of a child of a superhero. There could have really been an interesting thread. All said and done, am I devastated that we're not going to get another solo volume of Avengers next? No, I'm pretty excited to get to spend a little bit of time with American Dream Solo. She's a fun character and it could be really exciting to, you know, spend a little time with her. But really, I'm just kind of glad it's unfortunately over. Yeah, we are at a point now where I'm wanting to see things wrapped up and I'm really just constantly reflecting on what I do love about Earth 982, what I think the creative team was able to capture in creating these characters and in the intentions they set forth from them. Those things are all valid and still exist. We follow comic book characters that have much longer lives in which many other writers with far less talent get a hold of characters and write them into the ground. And, you know, we get another writer on the book, that character gets rehabbed, and we move on with our lives. None of these characters have had anything so horrible be written for them that I just can't ever like or enjoy them again. We're just at a point now where I'm eager to see things come to a close and to remember the core of each character that I really love and to still really wish that other people that got to read and enjoy these stories would get a chance to spend some time writing these and maybe kind of expand on some of these people. Well, we don't have a whole lot of time left to expand on these people, but I do have my fingers crossed that we will still get some meaningful, emotional payoff for a number of these characters with what little time we have. Yeah, it'll be it'll be good to say a fond farewell. 